This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Friday morning, everybody. Welcome to the day. Welcome to the program. The gang is gathered. Jeff and Terry are here. We're ready to rock and roll. Without the rock or the roll. There is a little roll, but it's a different kind hey, of roll. you told me you weren't going to mention my weight again. <laughs> hey, you uh, you sound better, less uh, nasally. You know what? I, I kind of grumbled and complained when my wife told me, oh, you got to try the, the Vicks yeah, nasal yeah. spray. And I did it last night. Life And I woke up and it's like, oh, I, I can breathe through my nose. Isn't that fantastic? Of course, my throat burns, but... <laughs> Of course, my eyes don't work anymore. Yeah. Hey, uh, boy, I guess today's the day that the government may shut down. And everybody's blaming Trump. But honestly, uh, in 2013, the Dems were Dems were in a very a similar situation. And now they're playing a different story. Well, Dems. this is the first time that a government shutdown is happening when one party controls all sections of government. Well, right. Because normally you could, you should be able to make this work because right. you control the wheels, right? Well, are you alluding to the fact that maybe people are blaming Trump for this? People are are, are going to blame Trump. Well, but the problem is the, the, the reason, GOP Congress or uh, – yeah, Congress passed a bill already. They already passed – No, the, re, the Republicans in the House passed a bill. Yeah. So now Not it goes Congress, to the Senate. But, yeah. Now it goes to the Senate. And the Senate's got to decide, but the Republicans are uh, – they're, they're always a little divided. Sure. The House a little divided. But the Democrats are saying, well, no, we're not going to pass a, a spending bill without a DACA reform, which doesn't always seem like they would go connected, be connected. Sure. But they're inserting it into this bill. But the Republicans They're need, taking the stand here. They need 10 votes yeah. from Democrats to pass the bill because they need 60, not 50. So the Democrats are saying, okay, this is how we compromise in government. We would like this. Right. Now, and, let's and just, just flip it though. A week ago, it. a week ago, the the president, many Republicans, people were saying, yes, no problem. We're all for this. We're great. And then that meeting happened where yeah. the president makes his comments. Yeah. Before that, yeah. as you remember, Lindsey Graham, Republican. Tons of opportunity. He's saying, love Donald Trump sure. last Tuesday. Sure. Then all of a sudden we had a meeting on Thursday, different guy. So different so, approach. To I know, this. but so are we saying then the shutdown of the government is because what Trump said a week ago? They're pointing to that. That that seemed to be a situation where before that, not but, him. Oh, I know. But if we reverse this, if we reverse this exact play, and put the Democrats in charge and the Republicans were doing this, who do you think would take the beating? Sure, that's politics. It goes well, it's every not which politics. way. It, there's a there's no, a it, slight. It's, it is politics. Bend. Everyone pulls for their own issue, uh, regardless know, of what the, the situation is. The Republicans took the fall for the last shutdown, it and it looks just, like they're going to take the well, fall for this shutdown. Well, mainly it should be Ted Cruz because the Republican leadership told Ted Cruz, right, "Do not shut the government down in 2013," and he did it anyway. What's that called? That's called politics. Sure. Can and anybody? So the else? dilemma is who do you blame? There's people out there that won't go to work because of this. This is yeah. sad. 800 and something thousand people. That's yeah. crazy. Can anyone else hear a Schoolhouse Rock song playing through their mind as you guys are explaining yeah. what, how a government shutdown works? <laughs> yeah. A little water, a little rolled up uh, water paper walking up and down the steps of Capitol Hill. And if the government can't agree in 12 hours, there's gonna, <laughs> they're going to start all over again. Oh, boy. <laughs> 
that's what you need. It's a it's a crazy time, and again, it is it's all politics, but it's also all how you spin the deal. And uh, I don't think the Republicans are very good at spinning. Really? Well, they don't spin as well as the Dems right now. Hmm. The Democrats are the minority party, but seem to have all of the power and control. The the Republicans don't have to spin anything. Oh yes, they, they just do. deflect. Also, they the, deflect. The Republican leaders are on record saying they have no idea what the president wants when it comes yeah. to these deals, and so they're kind of confused, so they can't make a deal yeah. until the president says what he wants, and that's not happening. I know, but again, and, and it's is he still leaving town? Yeah, we'll get to that because if that's that's just bad optics, right? That's just not a good visual. To have the government shutting down and the president flying to Mar-a-Lago, that just won't work. He has important business. Well, I'm sure he does. Um, and he – but he's, he ought to stay in town. You, I, I remember uh, President Bush had to stay in town once for something. He couldn't li- – no, it was President Obama couldn't fly to Hawaii on a trip because there was legislation being passed at the last minute before his Christmas holiday. Really? Because it sounds like he's under suspicion for some sort of crime. Do not leave town, Mr. President. No, no, no. Flight risk. Speaking of yeah. interesting visuals and the president's health, did you see that uh, post on social media where it had a picture of President Trump? It said 6'2", 239 pounds, and then it had a picture of Alex Rodriguez, 6'3", yeah. 240 pounds. Yeah, Terry brought this up that these athletes are all – Donald Trump has the weight and height of an athlete. Albeit, you know, a retired athlete. Well, yeah, he's 71. But no, retired athletes are heavier. <laughs> they really are. They put on the pounds. Just watch. Time. Just watch all of the like sports shows. Charles Barkley, Shaquille <laughs> O'Neal. You watch. Hey, they're huge. Yeah. Oh, it's hard. Well, uh, we'll see. I guess hopefully something comes out of this. I mean, hopefully the this is what the Senate is for, right? They're supposed to use all of their diplomacy, all of their incredible, uh, wonderful uh, politicking and negotiating skills. Today's the day. Today's the day. Hopefully they can do something. And if the Dems and Republicans can't get it together, <laughs> you know, we're you would have been a have big hit. Another government shutdown. Yeah, I don't remember that. Uh, I don't remember that one. Really? I remember the veto one, uh, you know, where he, yeah, he teaches how the bill becomes a bill and the veto. And I remember him getting on a train or something. I don't remember him doing one of those for the government for shutdown. For the government shutdown. Hmm. I guess that was not a part of it back then. I just I can't get it out of my head. That's I think what we do honestly lack, and I'm not. This is this. I think today we lack diplomacy and we lack leadership. Not this is not just presidential leadership. We lack. We don't have senators. Yeah, you're talking like the guy delivering your mail. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm talking about the fact that <laughs> our senators used to actually talk no. and used to actually that never happened, man. Bend. You have and no proof of I'll this. I'll pay you here. You pay me here. All under the table, of course. Okay, but uh, we don't we, do that anymore. We can watch Netflix this weekend, regardless of what happens, right? Yeah, but see, that's... No, we're good. We're good. I, well, are we? Because our guest today is going to talk about how all of these mergers may not be so good for me. Because media. then yeah. all of a sudden you have what four or five media sources. Controlling all of your media. Oh, sure. And, I am. I'm not a fan of this merger. And on the board of these companies are major pharmaceutical companies, major alcohol distributors. Make, make, I mean, major enterprises. And these are the companies that help you understand your culture. And in the culture becomes everything about your pharmaceuticals, your beer, your yeah. 
everything. Yeah, I don't. I do not think that Disney needs any more power. D- Disney owns the world now. If this goes through, and I mean, lots of people will love it. Hulu will be incredible. Hopefully, they change the name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, but what would you change it to? Anything else. Yeah. I think Hulu's ridiculous. Well, it's like a Hulu hoop. Call it like the awesomest TV experience ever. Yeah. It's you, good you could approach it that way. That would be good marketing. It would be great marketing. Everyone would be like, wow, I wonder what's on that channel. I guess it's awesome. It's just a name. Right. I understand. I mean, names it Sounds are... like a name that President Trump would give it. Wow. Why? I mean, you know, just hyperbole and... Everything's not Trump. Anyway, uh, let's get to the headlines. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to today? Speaking of, President Trump scheduled to depart Washington, leave the White House amid a looming government shutdown today for a lavish gala marking his first year in office at his Mar-a-Lago resort. The White House released an itinerary late Thursday showing Trump and his wife would leave D.C. about 4 p.m. Eastern Friday. Okay, that's just that's a, about the end of the day. Yeah, just hours before government funding runs out if the Senate doesn't pass a stopgap funding bill that already is facing opposition. While lawmakers rush to beat the clock, the president will be preparing for his gala Saturday, where a ticket starting at $100,000 a pair will buy guests dinner, a photograph with the president. Yeah. This out of Bloomberg News. Uh, Democratic lawmakers were quick to slam Trump for leaving town amid the crisis. Trump going to Mar-a-Lago while government shutdown looms is uh, most irresponsible, self-absorbed, dereliction of duty ever by a president. Representative hmm. Steve Cohen of Tennessee tweeted, Matt... Uh, Matt House, the communications director for oh, Senate Minority yeah. Leader Chuck Schumer, question why Trump is leaving town when lawmakers are waiting on him to articulate what he's for so they can finalize the bipartisan deal. Oh, that's what it's about. Because they're all waiting for Donald to tell them what it's what he's well, for no, because they can't negotiate anything without knowing what, what Donald that's thinks. That's what Mitch McConnell said the other that's day. That's bull. I know. You know why? The reality is they, they always have come to the president with what they can do. Right. This is what well, we can get through. He's also said, I'll sign anything you put in front of me. Yeah. Right? So, so that, that's like, actually an issue. What are you going to do? Who is to blame for this? Is it know. is it a president who has limited power in actually getting mm-hmm. this through these two bodies, or is are, is it about the bodies themselves? But everyone seems to be trying to deflect responsibility. Yeah. It's a hot potato. It's called politics. Yeah. Prosecutors say the parents of 13 siblings held captive in a Paris, California home gave their children one small meal a day, mm. let them shower once a year, and left them chained to furniture and routinely prepared food in front of them that they were not allowed to eat. Riverside County District Attorney Mike Hestron said the siblings between the ages of 2 and 29 rarely saw the sun. They were beaten, choked, and shackled to their beds. The parents accused the kids of playing with water while washing their hands, and they would go months without access to the bathroom. If you had, if you washed your hands above your wrist, you were disciplined. Yeah. You're what? only allowed to wash your hands below the wrist. So... Did we ever find out why? What is they're what still, is the deal? They're still going through it. Apparently, the kids uh, were allowed to write journals, which apparently like kept a record of what well, happened, yeah, what was evidence. going on. So there go. there's that. We'll figure it out at some point. The uh, the couple, the Turpins, were charged Thursday with several counts, including torture, abuse, false imprisonment. Both pleading not guilty. They're being held on thirteen million dollars bail each. Each. That's a million dollars for each kid. It's not enough. Not not enough. Not enough. Ah, uh, 
There's a bunch of other stuff. But uh, moving on, a record number of women are planning to run for governor in 2018, with four women in the race in Ohio alone, the Washington Post reports. While the previous record for women running for governor in a single year was 34, in 1994, 2018 is on track to see at least 79 women vying for the honor of leading their state. The Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University found Donald Trump's presidency is credited as one of the motivating factors for women tossing in their hats into the ring. There is a sense that if we don't run, then we won't achieve, said Michigan Democratic gubernatorial candidate Gretchen Wilmer. Yet, while most of the women running in 2018 are Democrats, with 49 so far, the other 30 Republican women are running also. Mm. In Tennessee, three women are competing against two men for the GOP nomination in a state that has never had a female gubernatorial nominee from a major party. Wow. Yeah. A lot of excitement. That's great news. Oh, yeah. And it's, wow, and a new announcement. Apparently there are females in the Republican Party. No. Like, they, they, wow. they announced that like it's a surprise. That, well. And in the GOP, females will run. Right. Like, what are they? Like, 50 years behind? I don't know. Okay. So they're out there. Just checking. Uh, also, uh, there's a uh, the anniversary of the Women's March from last year. Yeah. Is coming up, so they're going to celebrate it this weekend. But the, if that was the march that didn't have very many people. The Women's March? Do you remember the the big play on how many people were turning out? Oh yeah, yeah. just for the women's march versus Trump's. Right. Yeah, they like shut down. Yeah, public, you know, like busing that, services. That was and stuff a huge event, up. but it won't be as big as last oh, okay. year. Uh, Apple. This is the uh, the final thing here. Apple is the world's most admired company, is ranked by Fortune for the eleventh year in a row. The editors write: Everyone looks up to Apple with a market value that recently sat around nine hundred billion dollars. The iPhone maker is the world's most valuable company, and for the 11th year in a row, it also ranks number one in their annual list of corporate reputation, followed number two for a second straight year by Amazon. Wow. In less auspicious news, GE plunged from seven to number 30 wow. as its stock dropped 45% in 2017. But on the positive side, Adidas and Lockheed Martin made their debut among the top 50. It seems world. like a Excellent. strange statistic. Like, they, you look up... To Apple, I want to be like you, Apple, when I grow up. Someday. Well, I'm going to have a market the, cap. <laughs> maybe the large number of people reading that story this morning on their phones yeah. as they kind of breeze through their morning Touché. news. Touche. So, wow. Well, aren't they looking down then? Yeah. They're looking yeah. down to Apple. Yeah. That's a, I mean, you could look up, but it would be kind of weird holding your phone over your head. Oh, no, that, I you do get that. the crick in your mm. neck and, oh, yeah, yeah. that's what I do. I lift it way I make – I try to lift my head up. Yeah. Put my phone above my head. Is that how you get the exercise rings uh-huh. going on your iPhone? It gets rid of that watch. flab under your arm. Right. You know, the flappy flab. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you have to admit, when that's flapping, you, you're a little tempted to play with it. Mm, not really. <laughs> not really. Who's affected by the government shutdown if it does happen? Well, I guess all government employees and anybody that would want to use the government. So there's 850,000 federal workers who would oh, be wow. sent home without pay or, furlough, or furloughed, though employees deemed essential would stay on the job without pay. Boy, that's going to be a fight. The last shutdown, they paid them retroactively once government yeah. resumed. A shutdown would be pretty, especially if it lasted for more than a few days. It would cost government in ways that are big and small, things uh, things that wouldn't change. U.S. Postal Service would deliver mail as normal. Social Security and Medicare would be unaffected. Veterans would still get health care. And air traffic controllers, Forest Service firefighters, and FDA food safety inspectors would stay on the job. There you go. Uh, oh, good. They're deemed essential. 
All military members would be required to report for work as usual. Paychecks would be delayed only if the shutdown lasted beyond February 1st. Mm. Uh, the White House wants to keep the national parks and memorials open. So I oh, don't, I don't really? know how that works. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, 850,000 employees not working will stall activities at most federal agencies, and that will cause some havoc. Most intelligence analysts would be furloughed, AP says. 61% of the Center of Disease Control and Prevention staff would be sent home. So the Man. CDC during a flu epidemic, yeah, they go home. Uh, the IRS would likely furrow thousands of employees as it tries to implement the new GOP tax law. And biomedical and public health research at the uh, National Institutes of Health would grind to a halt, mm. adversely affecting products that you have to monitor on yeah. a daily basis. They just throw those out and start over. Uh, day one of the world uh, – so day one, the world doesn't fall apart. But if it continues – By day three, worse. the world's pretty much falling it gets apart. Yeah. That's scary. And by the way, thankful for all of these people that do these jobs we don't even pay attention to. Right. But they're furloughed for a week and then all of a sudden research that's been going on for or years. I saw what some of the longer ones are like 16, 17 days. Yeah. But then who do you blame? Last time the Republicans took a hit in the next uh, election. Yeah. Because – it, it's all based on your politics. Well, what what ha- with the last one, Ted Cruz was he wanted to end Obamacare, right? So he felt I'm going to hold it hostage. At least that's the story that came out. I'm going to shut the government down until they budge, and then they didn't budge, and then they started the government back up, and Ted Cruz got nothing out of it, and it looked like it was a complete waste of everyone's time, Which, and a lot of Republican uh, didn't Republicans didn't get reelected because that so sort of Democrats followed. are now. Trying to get something, DACA, which is essential. It's an important bill that should have been dealt with right. six months ago. Well, that's 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 some of the idea. Like maybe it'll be on the Republicans, is because everyone has been on record saying this is something they want to take care but, of. And, I know. And fix. I, I agree. It, yeah. Is it does it have to be tie, tied to a spending bill? There is the idea that if the Democrats give here, then the next time we'll just yeah, and that's you, maybe you why that meeting ground. didn't go so well. Because if the president had a little more goodwill in the meeting, maybe they would have just nego- they would have seen negotiation toward DACA, and then they could have just passed a spending bill. Senator Dick Durbin was the only Democrat in that meeting. Dick Durbin, who, by the way, obviously can't hear very well. Huh? Apparently, he's him and Lindsey Graham are the only ones that are saying they heard him, <laughs> President, say what he said. But uh, so Dick Durbin is saying that he went in to the meeting after Lindsey Graham called up the president and said, yeah. we have a deal. It's bipartisan. It's exactly what you talked about. Let us come over and present it to you and we'll talk to you. He goes, great, let's do that. And he comes over and it was two hours later oh, they come over for the that. meeting. And that's when they had four other members of Congress in there that are – Completely against any sort of immigration reform yeah. in this way. Sabotage. And so the, the whole deal fell apart, and they feel like somebody at the White House yeah. threw a wrench into this whole process that the president was saying he wants, and I want yeah. a bipartisan deal, and let's get this done. Which So the, pro, the somewhere along the way, someone messed yeah. up the process. But it's not the president. Well. It's just one of his people, and I think we know who it is. Well, sure. But – this is kind of like when you, you, someone's going to be blamed for this. Yeah, yeah. But, you ever been to a yard sale oh, yeah. and you want to get a good deal on something? So you say, okay, I'll take that, but uh, why don't you throw in this other unrelated thing? Can you thing? throw in the weed eater with it? Right. Yeah. And it has nothing to, to do right. with it. Yeah. Like this is a smorgasbord. Yeah. Like you can just take a little here, grab some of that seven bean salad. But by the way, those are the best types of deals. Yeah. Just uh, throw some of that in there. 
That's where all the pork, all the fat goes in. <laughs> That's where you just all of a sudden are gaining extra calories you don't need. Oh, well. We can't solve it, but we can understand it. That's, I guess, part of the goal here. Better understand. Uh, Straight ahead, we're going to be talking um, with an expert about the potential 21st century Fox merger deal. Uh, It's troubling for many in the media. All of these consolidations and all of these companies, ah, it's a lot of power for so few organizations. We'll be getting into that straight ahead on The Matt Townsend Show. The proposed $52.4 billion merger of Disney and 21st Century Fox would merge the first and third largest film companies in the world. Marvel Studios, Lucasfilm, Pixar, Searchlight, 20th Century Fox, and Big Sky would all be under the same umbrella. That is a lot of power in one organization. Here to talk with us about what that could mean to the rest of us is Dr. Margot Suska. She is a professor, a professional lecturer at American University School of Communication Journalism Division and also heads the weekend uh, master's program in journalism and digital storytelling there as well. Margot, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Matt. This, I mean, we we hear about mergers all the time, and and everybody's heard of Disney, and everybody's probably even heard of 21st Century Fox, but underneath these organizations are a lot of powerhouse entities, right? So just walk us through uh, the players. Who's involved in this merger? And give us your take. Is this a good or a bad thing? So underneath the uh, the Disney 21st Century uh, Fox merger, the potential for, as you mentioned, film studios um, is large. Disney also, I'm not sure many people know, controls, uh, owns ABC. It also owns ESPN. 21st Century Fox, uh, of course, owns a number of regional sports channels around the world. It owns Fox News, although Fox News would stay as a separate part Uh, of the Murdoch family and wouldn't be a part uh, of this deal. We also have um, a a big player in this and a big issue is uh, Hulu, the streaming service, which would become, uh, which would be sold under this deal. And everyone expects that it's part of the reason that Disney is making a play for 21st Century Fox, uh, because it would allow the the company, the new mega company, to go head-to-head with Netflix. Mm. And it would also allow for it to compete globally, almost having power, I've argued, of a state actor going after emerging markets like India um, and also giving it more negotiating, uh, more negotiating power, I think, in places like China. Oh, and you, in your article uh, in the conversation, you bring up some really interesting points about how media – shapes culture and media shapes mindsets in people. Um, so is that what you're, you're most afraid of, is kind of this, this uh, mega organization that has, uh, or maybe even three or four organizations this big, uh, that, that can shape how we see the world? I agree. I think that for, for people like me who study media and media consolidation and also journalism, I think that there is a real concern, and I, I, I think more Americans have to pay attention to who's controlling the narratives, the narratives in 
our news, and our entertainment. And when you have six companies right now that control all of those stories, um, you know, stories about gender, about relationships, about politics, about global affairs, reality television, my concern really is, are we doing a better job for, for citizenry, or are we just looking at profit? Are these companies just looking at profit? And that becomes a real concern for me, in a, you know, someone who was a journalist and who now studies journalism and democracy and media and culture is, is profit going to be put above all else? And what effect does that have on the news, information, and entertainment that we get in a, you know, in a globalized society? Mm. Those are the kinds of concerns that we have. Another major concern that scholars like myself have is what kind of political power a company like this can wield? And what does it mean for average citizens? What does it mean for consumers? When you're paying 20 or 25% more, when you, know, you see your cable bill coming in, you know, who, who, do you have a voice in, hmm. you know, in, in talking to regulators or legislators who may be on you know, getting lobbying money or on the payroll from some of these big corporations? We don't get the same seat at the table like a, a big mega media company would. And that's concerned. When you shrink the number of voices and the number of companies and just increase their power in that way, really what it does is it hurts consumers in terms of pricing. I expect that we might see layoffs, um, which you know people talk about job growth in the wake of mergers. I've never seen that. Huh, right. um, so prices that will increase. Um, and you know, So there are, there are just a number of concerns with, with this merger and other mergers that um, that I'm glad some you know I'm glad people are paying attention to. Do I, I could hear some voices out there saying, ah, media doesn't influence me, media can't move me. But maybe give us some of the facts, give us some of the research that you've seen about uh, and the evidence that media does shape our beliefs, it does shape our mindset. Yeah, I think it's interesting that oftentimes we think media affects other people, but never ourselves, right? right? And so I think it, it is interesting. Now let's remember that the average American is spending about 12 hours a day with media. So in the, in the way that, you know, 100 years ago, religion or family um, was so important in how we, we told ourselves stories of our culture and our place in culture, really media in many ways has replaced that for many Americans, not all, hmm. but an average of 12 hours a day in front of a laptop or a mobile phone or television, uh, you know, in the silver screen on the weekends for many people, really that those narratives are shaping how we see the world and how we feel about the world. And there is effects research that shows, um, you know, an increased use of television, uh, of crime shows, tends to lead to an increase in how we see the world, that we may be more fearful of the world around us, or we may expect um, that we are more likely to become a victim of crime, right? Mm. These are just some of the research. And we often see research, and the research that I'm most interested in, on adolescents. And things like Instagram use, usage or things like magazine usage and uh, exposure to advertising, which tends to have a negative effect often on girls and, and adolescent self-esteem. So these are real concerns. And, you know, advertising in the United States is a $17 billion a year industry. Mm. So the idea that someone says media mm. doesn't affect me, and I think, you know, it certainly affects some more than others. But clearly, billions of dollars are getting spent to gain our attention and shape our attitudes and our beliefs and our behaviors. Um, and I think it's, you know, they're doing a, a pretty good job. Yeah. In fact, you cite a, a, a campaign for commercial-free childhood 
which has been, I guess, evaluating, measuring the impact of these ads. And, and they have found a connection to eating disorders, precocious sexuality, youth violence, family stress, and, the, and a diminished capability to play creatively. Mm-hmm. Wow. Which, which is a huge issue, right? Yeah. You know, um, and again, I'm not saying that this that that media is the cause of every right. woe that we have in society, but there's demonstrated research. I mean, the American Pediatric Association has recommended for years that during annual well visits, uh, pediatricians speak with parents about media usage, how much children are using, and giving them some specifics on the the real potential for effects for some children. And I think that that, you know, the, you know, American Pediatric Association, they don't have, you know, they're, I mean, I, I'd like to think that their, you know, belief is, 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 you know, child well-being. And so, you know, I think that there are some real concerns. Now, again, some people could say, well, it's just fantasy. You know, I can turn on The Bachelor, or I can turn on The Real Housewives, or I can turn on these shows, and it's just entertainment. <laughs> right. I do think that there's real evidence that, you know, some of these shows shape um, female-to-female relationships. Um, they shape things about, you know, what young, uh, what teenage girls may believe is, um, you know, is realistic about love, you know, turning love into a competition. And, you know, so it's just, you know, it's just a fascinating landscape. And it's it's just, for me, such an interesting time to be studying these issues. Oh, yeah. You've you're in the mix of it now. I mean, this, and and the fact too, with it changing constantly, and uh, and even just the 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 medium changing. I mean, it used to be television, right? Or it used to be radio, and now there's so many other sources, podcasting, all these other things that are available. Um, again, we're speaking with Margot Suska, and she is a, prof- a professor and a professional lecturer in the American University School of Communication Journalism Division. Also, um, uh, obviously, a wonderful writer and uh, and I think a thought leader in this in this field. Do we, Margot? I, I can see that um, when we used to have like the public airwaves, right, and um, they were. They were built. We still have the public, still have the public airwaves, so I, yeah, I want to make sure. Yeah, we do. That, you know, but we there, technically, but it's are getting more complicated, right? Because on them. yeah, but but it, the internet uh, is it's hard to own, right? The internet's a hard thing to own, and it's but it is is it a public utility? Should it be regulated by government? And can you regulate something fully by government that's that has a complete dark underbelly that can? do other things with it? Well, that is outside the scope of my area of expertise. But I, I do think that the Internet, what, what I think, and you bring up a good point, which is, you know, it used to be television and we got our news, you know, Walter Cronkite right. every night and three, you know, the newspaper. Yeah, three anchors, right? Yeah. Right, in the morning, right? So that was how we got our news and our information. It really, there really weren't that many channels. Certainly cable dramatically changed the landscape in the 1980s, and CNN dramatically changed the landscape of, of news, right? The expectation that you needed 24-hour news cycles with images, right? So again, with video. So we have to look at issues like what makes it onto television or cable news, and, and often internet news as well now, has to have an image. It has to have something visual with it. Now think about how that changes coverage of politics, mm. policy, and issues, whether that's in Utah or whether that's where I grew up in Connecticut. You know, think about some of these meetings that go on where, you know, decisions are getting grinded out and, you know, which may not be very visually appealing. Those stories are going to be left on 
kind of the side of the road. We're not going to have those kinds of stories anymore. And often those are so important for how we understand and make sense of our civic life. And I think, you know, that's a huge issue. But the Internet also, right, provides us with the opportunity to just seek out our own beliefs and only one-sided beliefs. Um, I saw a headline this morning on Media Shift that said, a story that said, uh, Breitbart is now uh, getting more unique users a month than Politico. And, you know, so this wow. is kind of what we would consider a right-wing website with tens of millions of users, um, and, you know, in, in more than what I would consider an objective, an objective news site. So these are real concerns about if we're only getting one side of the story, rather than if that's liberal or conservative, how is that changing the landscape of news and information in a democracy. Mm. And that is, to me, a, a real tr- a troubling issue. And I think it starts, you know, it's got to start in school with media literacy and an understanding of the media landscape and what a huge effect I think, you know, it has on, on children, adolescents, and adults. Yeah, you also brought up, a, a, I think, an incredibly good point about the fact that these a lot of the shows that are produced by these companies um, for example, uh, fictional TV shows like Homeland, The Americans, 24, where they routinely cast foreigners as villains. So we actually start to see um, we start to see Russians as I mean, I, I grew up in a generation where my parents would talk about how Russia could come take us over at any minute. Sure. Um, but my kids didn't grow up that way. But then if right. they watch one of these shows, they realize that Russians are bad again. So it right, almost right. No, we, we start real, to create I mean, that. So when I talk about the political power of these media organizations that, you know, Trump and, and Fox, and, and this is not to say it's only a conservative issue, I don't mean to suggest that it is, but Trump has had, I think, what, what many would say is a very cozy relationship with Fox News and with Rupert Murdoch. So I think that the connection between politics and media has long been there. Hmm. But when you have fewer corporations with that kind of power, it also means that they have political power. And they can help you know, shape ideas about war in society, about how we feel about Arab countries, about Islamophobia, there are real effects here. And I think that, you know, someone like me, who identify as a political economist, we look at the roots of that, you know, which, as you're saying, you know, movies that, um, you know, glorify the 1980 American um, hockey team in the Winter Olympics, right? And, yeah. um, you know, Rocky, who's, you know, who was his villain during, you know, some of, of, of the, um, you know, peak times? And look at how that is, a you know, the, the questions are, does that create American values or reflect American values? And what, what I'm saying is I think when you have media and politics so cozy and so powerful that we are going to get characters that help shape our feelings about foreign policy and domestic policy as well. Um, and, and I think that's a big issue, right? How yeah. we might see Latinas or Hispanics portrayed as you have leaders talking about building a wall. Um, you know, with Mexico. So, you know, consider how those stories are told, not just in news, but also in entertainment. Is um, because you brought up earlier that, you know, we used to spend our time reading the Bible because that was like the only book in the house. And we and churches had more influence and families even had more influence um, in, in sculpting how we see the world. Now, as as it turns like more to conglomerates to major organizations, um, what what can we do as parents? What can we do as 
family members to, uh, I guess, manage this better? I mean, you talked about media literacy. Are there other things we could do to make a, make our, a more noise about it? Well, certainly I think that you know, having discussions with children about media from a very young age, uh, you know, I have a six-and-a-half-year-old daughter who is, um, you know, she's allowed to watch television and she's allowed to do the iPad, but, you know, certainly we put limits on how much time she's allowed to spend. So I think, and also having conversations, this is an, an advertisement or this, you know, what is an advertisement? Oh, we're trying to explain to her, you know, they want us to buy their product or, well, this is a character who, you know, you know, is a strong female character. And isn't that nice? You know, shows like Odd Squad on PBS. So I think there are shows where you have a diverse cast and, um, you know, great messages for children, not all children's programming, though. But I think that parents need to need to respect that children are immersed in this world of media from a very young age and respect that they can have conversations, um, maybe not that you would have with an adult, but have conversations about advertising. Certainly, I think the, the, the level of violence often in children's programming and cartoons is a concern for me. And I think that parents, you know, should be prepared to have those discussions. Is this the way that we solve problems? Is this the best way? Um, but really be prepared to have discussions about the media that their children are using. Um, and, and understanding, you know, mobile phones, once kids connect or, you yeah. know, at age 10, 11, 12, once they're connecting um, you know, online to cell phones and they're out of the house, they're really, they have access to content that would be, I think, shocking, um, you know, to many grownups, or maybe it's not to me, it's always shocking what I hear, um, you know, is out on the web. But, you know, tracking usage and, and, and having real honest discussions about it, yeah. um, whether that's content that's of a sexual nature or a violent nature, um, you know, but also conversations about what some of this programming and some of this content says about relationships and friends. And, um, you know, it's, it's all out there. And I just think parents need to be willing and really take the time because the influence, the potential for the influence is huge. Well, and more co-viewing, I mean, sitting down and watching the show with them. I mean, Absolutely. That's, we don't I mean, do that as much. I, we don't do that as much because it's very easy, you know, for especially for, for working uh, parents. And, you know, if you have two parents who are yeah. working, it's very easy. Friday night is movie night in, in, um, in our house. And, you know, my daughter loves that time. We get to sit down and, and watch a movie. But I have to admit, I, I understand the sense of I also need to get laundry done yeah. or get dinner made yeah. or, you know, clean up, you know, from, from lunch that may not have, you know, been cleaned up. So I understand that. And we often use ma- media now as a babysitter in the same way that perhaps, you know, parents or friends or, or you know, or neighbors may have um, taken on that role. And I think that co-viewing is a great idea. And you you also bring up, it's kind of an, on, it's an ominous tone, but it's, um, I think it's so important. As, as these become conglomerates that are making the decisions, they're really going for market share. And one of the ideas you're, you're predicting is that uh, this merger will strengthen Disney's bargaining power with China. So when all of a sudden Disney has more power to get their stuff into China, then are they going to create content for Americans or for the Chinese? And would that be a different culture and a different value system? And would the values slip or adjust? I think what it's a great question, and I think what my prediction would be in trying to get into these Chinese markets is that you're not going to see nuanced, you know, beautiful films about you know Chinese culture yeah. or history or right. American or even American ones that we would try to put in you know into um, you, you know India or China. I think the expectation will be 
more blockbusters, yeah. more violence, more explosions. And more explosions. Yeah. That's right. I mean, that's what you're going to see. Big budget films based on, you know, superheroes, this Marvel, which you mentioned at the start of the program, yeah. is a part of, you know, a part of this merger, part of this deal. Um, so I, I think that we can expect more superhero films, more violence, which crosses, you know, you don't need any cultural understanding of the United States, India, right. France, or China in order to, to get, you know, good guy, bad guy, and, you know, and Lots of of explosions on on you the could, screen. Yeah, you just go to the more base, exactly needs and emotions. Wow, Margaret. Exactly. Interesting stuff. Great insight. And uh, we so appreciate you and your time. Again, uh, Margot Suska is her name. Uh, she received her PhD from Florida State University and is now a professional lecturer in American University's School of Communication Journalism. Um, uh, it's, a, it's just it's important that we think this stuff through. It's just a decision, right? It's good for business, and whatever's good for business is obviously good for the democracy, right? Well, this is where we got to make some decisions, and I know it's hard, but it's ours. Those are our decisions to make. So powerful stuff, folks. We'll continue the journey doing what we can to help you be the good in the world. It's back, folks. Wow. Ominous. Ominous is right. The yellow-bellied sea snake, folks, has hey. the... <laughs> Sorry. I wasn't talking about oh, okay. you. Okay. What are you calling me? Apparently, thanks to climate change, uh, yellow-bellied sea snakes... Are they the, cowardice or something? Yeah. Not, yeah. Okay. They're actually... They have a yellow belly. Oh, actual yellow yeah. belly. Uh-huh. And they're normally found in the world's tropical oceans, but these reptiles have now somehow traveled several hundred miles north Mm. from southern Mexico, north to the Baja, California. And guess what? Now there are poisonous, venomous snakes appearing on the beaches in California. Hmm. So water temperature changes where they normally live. Yep. They move to more habitable climates. Yeah. And that happens to be on the beach. They're or like near that, the beach. They're like that guy in the pool that's always, you know, moving to the warm spot of the pool. I was always told don't do that. <laughs> Actually, isn't the warm spot following him? <laughs> no. See, okay. That's gross. Yeah, that's interesting. So yeah. what are they doing? So and what do you do when you see a yellow bellied snake, you know, slithering through the ocean? Oh. You get away from it. Oh, so they've had to. They've had to kill a few of them. I mean, they have to euthanize them. You can't. Like these things could breed. Oh, please sure. tell me they Some brought mess. in uh, Samuel L. Jackson. Um, well, we will see. He's going to do the PSA that's coming yeah. out soon. So yes, it, it, the, there's a new movie coming out called Snakes on a Beach, mm. and it is scary. Huh. But, I don't uh, think we have the trailer for that one. I think we'll have to settle with snakes in JFK Airport. Yeah. Apparently, by the way, um, the snakes have been washing up for years. 2015, three snakes were found washed up in the winters of 2015 and 2016. Mm. Then another one. I mean, the thing about this is El Nino. Remember back in the El Nino years? Yes. I guess it was a it was common sea snakes coming up. So if if you happen to see one, don't touch it. If your son I, I, brings it to you yeah. and throws it in your lap as you're sitting on a lawn chair on the beach, you're probably dead. <laughs> okay. Your son just threw a sea snake on you. I usually avoid snakes. Yeah. Don't even try to figure out if it's poisonous or not. Just stay away. 
Yeah. They're also just creepy, the way they move. It's like, come on. And they've got to come out of the water because they can't just drink seawater. So they've oh. got to get up So and they, they drink need... rainwater oh, wow. that falls to the surface. So they're a little snobby. They're a little picky yeah, with their water. Aloof. Uh-huh. Hmm. Yeah. So we just want you to watch out for it. I mean, you may just take a trip to California, hanging out at the beach, Newport Beach. This would be Baja, though, you said. Well, they I guess they found one in Newport. Oh, really? Wow. It's kind of scary. Newport. But I think New, uh, the Baja Peninsula down there is where they've probably been hanging out recently. And then one made it all the way up. Oh, wow. Also, you can find them in New Zealand. But they're gonna, they're, they believe they'll have more and more as the, the ocean water temperatures are changing. They'll have more and more moving north. This is one of the signs. Yeah. This is one of the signs. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Thanks. Of road construction or what? I mean, yeah, signs? That's one of the signs of the times. Okay. Signs. It's also yeah. It's also just. It's like snakes. I mean, there's a lot of signs that we don't talk about as much, right? I mean, come on. Hot pocket. That's a sign of the times. Fire burning in your mouth. It's all straight ahead, folks. We'll continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I was through the streets. A coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, friends. You know, um, again, life is what you make it, right? Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Uh, do you feel it? We know that the country has been in a kind of, you know, in a funk. And again, not it's not political, but they've been in this... Uh, this depressed state. I hear it all the time in my office. I uh, There's some interesting studies that have been out recently about uh, how more and more of us are depressed. And I wouldn't connect it to um, politics per se. I would connect it to media or, or the um, what you're doing in your downtime. Are you caught up in your phone so much so that when you wake up in the morning, Instead of rolling over and saying good morning to your significant others, do you first check your email, check your voicemail? Do you first go check the news headlines? Because if that's where you go first and that's where you go all day, 12 hours a day, the research shows, and if that's where you go at night before you lay your head down at night, then you probably would be depressed. Then you have to go check your social media to make sure you're popular enough, and hopefully you're getting enough likes, or uh, what does that mean? We live in a world where we we are getting a lot of external uh, stimuli and external uh, push on our minds and our values and our principles, and if we're not careful, too, the reality is, I think, the majority of what's going on in the world is, is noise. It's not even essential to your life. It's not essential to your happiness. It's not essential to your existence. Even your kid's homework project is not essential. It feels like it because it's due tomorrow. But what we probably need to start doing is turn stuff off that you don't want to hear. Turn stuff off that doesn't elevate your life or lift you. But don't just keep blaming everybody else for why you're unhappy. Turn it off. It's your right. It's your, it's your effect. It's your responsibility. But then replace it with something. Don't just change the channel to go get more distraction and more noise. 
turn all of it off and go create something valuable. Go create something powerful that elevates your soul, that elevates your life. It's so easy to just complain about how hard our lives are or how hard it is to, you know, deal with what's going on today or deal with uh, the decisions that are being made around you. But in the end, you're an agent, right? You're a free agent. And do you feel like it? Do you feel like you can go make a change in your own life? Because if you can't, there's places, there's resources, there's podcasts, there's things you can listen to, there's books you can read, there's people you can talk to that can help you uh, in your own personal life. Don't let the media live your life for you. Start using the media to make the better life. That's what we're trying to do here on the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll continue the journey together. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, along with Jeff and Terry. The gang is all gathered. For, by the way, um, it's your Friday. This is your launch. It's Good Friday. It's a good Friday. It's a I good Friday. Say. It's not the good Friday. It's a good Friday, and uh, so much to cover today. If you um, if you work with millennials, if you are a millennial, man, get ready. We got the guy for you. Our one of our guests today will be talking about how to motivate, how to understand a millennial. Um, he's a, a motivating a motivational speaker that has been working with youth for years and now uh, he has a really cool program where he goes into companies undercover and sees how and and interviews millennials as they're working like he's acting like he's a new employee and he finds out what what they're thinking you're a millennial inside of the company how do huh. they feel they're being treated inside the company and then he goes and coaches organizations on do the millennials find out yeah, do they eventually. feel like they've been violated or no. tricked or lied to by their company, no. and then and it he, just makes the problem worse? It's, no? it's like undercover boss, but it's undercover millennial. Does employee. he wear like a bad wig and a mustache like undercover boss? Yes, they do that. You're like, how yeah. do people don't know that's fake? Oh yeah, it I mean, looks horrible. Think. By the way, I love that we've established that right now you're not talking to me. This doesn't apply to yeah. me. Well, you're a, you're a you're an old millennial. No, I'm a zenial. Wasn't it a zenial? Yeah, zenial. We're both zenials. Yeah. That's not it. It's a thing. By the way, if you speaking of undercover boss yeah. and speaking of Star Wars, um, huh? oh, what? So Please, you, like you need go. to go look up undercover boss, undercover boss Kylo Ren or undercover yeah. boss Star Wars. Yeah, I've seen it. Good. It's so funny. It's not that funny, but it's good. Uh, it's one of the better SNL sketches to come out of <laughs> of their repertoire for the past few years. I would think. That's, I think, your second French word you've used today. Really? What was the first? Um, touche. Oh. He's going all French on us. Mm. En français. Anywho. <laughs> and I don't know how you got Star Wars into the conversation. <clears throat> well, he we just, were talking about it. He just said Star Wars and started talking. You were talking about Disney and... and no, that uh, was last hour. 21st Century Fox. Last hour. Yeah. Then we started a new conversation. Mm. Aren't we assuming that the listener is sticking no. with us? Nope. Well, because you're always telling them to stick with That's us. That's right. But, they, but they're but they not as sticky as they need to be. Get stickier. Hmm. What are you doing? 
Uh, a That's lot. what we should say every time to open the show. Get stickier. Speaking of politics, um, <laughs> it seems like we're we're in a really precarious position today. We could very well have the government shut down today. Right, and then it could open up Monday when they come back to work. Yeah. That's what a lot of the feel, uh, feeling is, is that both sides don't want this. So if someone does actually push it that far, that by Monday they'll chicken out and just bring it all so back. So they shut it down Friday and then they yeah. open it back up Monday. <laughs> right. They'll be like, ah, just kidding. But uh, for those that actually are employed by the government, it might be nerve wracking. Yes. Because then you go through the discussion, are you an essential person? Mm-hmm. That's got to be that's got to be your, your ego gets crushed when they say you're considered non-essential. Yeah, do you know oh. what it's going to do to the self-worth of a lot of these employees? But what if you actually for years have felt like you were essential and they've even told you like at the company party, yeah. you are essential. But then behind closed doors, oh, that guy's you don't not make so the list and you are now a non-essential. Like, now what do you do? Bob and human resources uh-huh. gets to come in. Yeah. And, and all he does is, well, look at Facebook all day. And I've been here Bob, 15 years longer than him. And remember, Bob has two citations, negative uh, peer reports. Right. And I don't have any negative peer reports. But Bob gets to stay on. So in a weird way, then the rest of your life, you now know you're a non-essential. Mm. It's hurtful. This is what we have to stop. <laughs> President Trump, please stay in town. Oh, he is. I read, I read that just a few, uh, about a half hour ago. He will stay in town if the government looks like it will shut down. He will not fly to Mar-a-Lago. He won't, he won't but who's going to do the fundraiser He'll for get him? there because it's Saturday. It's the next day. Yeah. So eventually I imagine he'll get down there because, Wait, you know, they're going to celebrate the way, him. Not just President Trump, but Republicans and Democrats, hello, figure this out yeah. or we will make you all pay. Mm. What fundraiser is this? It's the one-year anniversary of him becoming president. Oh, so I they're holding was, a one hundred thousand dollar a ticket fundraiser. Thought it, thought it was like the fake news awareness fundraiser. No, no that was the other day. That but that's by the way, that's a good idea. Maybe we need to. We just found out we've done like fourteen hundred and three. Yeah, shows. Like yeah. So maybe we ought to have a fundraiser where we charge one hundred and forty thousand. Really, three hundred dollars per okay. plate. How many people do you think will show? Well, the caterers. Can I get a couple tickets just to get in? Yeah. Do you have $280,600? Not really. Whoa. Do we get a discount if we cater it or if we usher it? No. I won't need an usher. It doesn't sound like there will be much to usher. (laughs) It'll be an empty room. You get Mitt to come. Yeah, Mitt will show. Really? Maybe then he'll use that as a platform to announce that he's running for yeah. Senate. He'll well, announce to an empty room. Yeah, so he'd have to announce to people that would be there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, maybe it was a bad idea. Not all ideas are good at first. Uh, let's get to uh, the headlines, find out what else we should be tracking, Terry. Speaking of possible bad ideas, Senate Democrats said they have votes to block the government funding stopgap measure that passed the House Thursday evening, but they're hoping to avoid a government shutdown that could inflict political damage on their vulnerable incumbents. Uh, Senate Democratic leader Charles Schumer wants to force the GOP leaders to negotiate to the negotiating table to work out a deal to protect dreamers from deportation. Republican uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, Mike Rounds of South Dakota and Rand Paul have said they will vote against the House spending stopgap bill 
And Senator John McCain is expected to miss the vote because he's recovering from cancer treatment. McConnell, Mitch McConnell, the Senate leader, needs 60 votes to advance the House bill past the Democratic filibuster. Down four votes in his own conference, he would need at least 13 Democrats to move forward. And he doesn't appear to be anywhere close to having that number. Come on! That's kind of where we sit at the moment. So, yeah. It's going to be a long day. Yeah, maybe for some. Yeah. I'm going to go home and watch cartoons. Yeah, but you're not an essential employee (laughs) of the government. Apparently. The Boston University study published Thursday has found the strongest link to date that ties repeated hits to the head and not damage from a concussion to uh, CTE. Interesting. So it's, it's not the concussion that's the issue. It's somebody repeatedly banging on your head. Yes. So CTE, the degenerative brain disease that slowly spreads and kills brain cells and has been fingered in a rash of serious ailments among National Football League players. According to the results, a study conducted by the university CTE Center and published in the journal Brain, 20% of the sample brains found to have CTE were from people who didn't report ever having a concussion. The findings raise additional questions about the effectiveness of protective gear used in sports like football and medical protocols calls used to clear athletes after head injuries. A guy gets hit on the field, he runs off the off the field, two minutes later he's back on the field. You're like, wait, that guy really yeah. got hit. Yeah. And he was stumbling around on the field, yeah, but he's but okay I, now? I'm fine. That happens all the time in the NFL. Well, the doctor One of his him. eyes is looking now they have Now they have a little tent they go into yeah. and sit down. You can't see what's going on and they come back out all ready to go. Are they talking about this in boxing as well? Yeah, um, probably yeah, it's in there. It's not as serious because, I mean, the whole point of boxing is to give the other guy a concussion. That's like the point of the sport. Right. Well, just that scenario that you were playing yeah. out sounded like Rocky, and I was like, ooh, that sounds like they're going to oh, have plenty no, of... Rocky's got problems. It also, they're they're worried about it for anybody that yeah. drives with new teenagers who are learning to drive. Right, the whiplash effect. Yeah. From little, and It's a lot of brain damage. And a lot of little league, should you let your kid play, they never get a concussion. There's always the little hit. Yeah. That's every play is a it's little hit. Little Little hit, little hit, little hit. So what they're saying is there must be a reduction in the number of head impacts. Yeah. So what do you do? Do you let your kid only play flag football? Two-hand touch. Yeah. Two-hand touch. Nobody wants to watch that. Where's the gladiatorial like element where you know you're clashing and it's yeah. a, you're, you're telling me you wouldn't you wouldn't tune in to watch a big huge three hundred pound guy daintily touch another football player and say I got you <laughs> I got you guys down. <laughs> no, I wouldn't turn it. I wouldn't no. tune into that. And he'd get really tired. Even the thought of that just turned me. U.S. crude oil production this year is set to exceed the output of Saudi Arabia for the first time in the modern era, according to the International Energy Agency. The Wall Street Journal reports that U.S. production is also expected to hit more than 10 million barrels per day for the first time since 1970. This year's promise uh, promises to be a record-setting one for the U.S., the agency said, noting that in 2017, the American shale industry beat all expectations thanks to cost cuts, stepping up drilling activity, and efficiency measured in forced during the downturn. Ooh. In 2017, Russia uh, uh, produced approximately 11 million barrels a day. So we're closing in on 10. Yeah. They're at 11 in Russia. So energy independence. Woo. Yes. Yes. Allegedly. Right. Uh, uh, and finally, a paper cup allegedly used by uh, Elvis Presley six decades ago in Oklahoma is up for auction. And the bids have already surpassed uh, $1,200. It's like a solo cup yeah, it's, yeah north carolina resident wade jones is a collector of all things elvis he tells the tulsa world that the uh, crumpled blue and white dixie cup was snagged by a fan in april 1956 
after huh. uh, Elvis performed at the Tulsa Fairgrounds Pavilion. Jones says a fan named June allegedly retrieved the cup a day after the performance right before Elvis left town for a show in Oklahoma City. A letter accompanying the collector's item said June had asked to keep the cup as a little memento. Jones said the auction closes Sunday if you want a paper cup that Elvis allegedly drank out of. Wow, and and then crumpled up? Yeah, I mean, threw away because it's garbage. Think it's of a, how many Elvis treasures could have been found in the Just follow him around, dump. pick up his trash, and sell it, yeah. I'm just cringing every time you say paper cup because it almost sounds like paper cut. And just, yeah. don't you, do you ever have that, uh, do you ever, you're sitting somewhere and you just randomly think, oh, what if somebody gave me a paper cut? And you can almost Hold on. feel it in your mind. No. No, I don't. I actually you don't, don't have you don't have when I get a paper, paper cut I can't believe it just happened like what the how mm. that happen you don't have Ouch. you don't have those phantom paper cuts no and I don't spend a lot of time worrying about future paper cuts what if because that would be just yeah, that sounds like a nightmare anything could happen in the future yeah talk about a bad movie by the way this is like the tamest prison I've ever seen yeah jailhouse rock yeah. I mean, all the cell block doors are open. Some guy got a trombone, it looks yeah, like. Yeah, how do you get a trombone in prison? You think that'd be used as a weapon? Yeah. No, but it brings so much happiness. Wow. That was what, our television moment. What we they like teeter-totters. to do. teeter-totters. A lot of times on the show, we like to watch a, sh- a television show or something on YouTube and then try to talk to you all about it. And then he's just on the table. It's so Where are the prison guards? Right. Break this party up. Yeah. This you is know, prison. They would be out there with their batons just going to town. Not if it's him. Elvis. This is Elvis. Yeah. Maybe this keeps the inmates happy. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't Ray, Ray, no, Roy Orbison. If you watch the new uh, Paddington this 2. This is Elvis. If you watch the Paddington 2 movie, there's a whole musical yeah. that happens in prison. So it's great. That uh, movie is so good, by the way. Don't you love those old singers, though? Mm. Seriously. Mm. Are you kidding? Like, Roy Orbison, for real? He's the bomb. Beach Boys? Beach Boys. Come on. Mm. <sighs> Willie <laughs> Nelson? Yeah. They each have, like... One or two songs where you're like, yeah, and then that's... No, Elvis had a ton. Sure. Roy Orbison had some. Uh, the Beatles, have you heard of them? I've heard of them a couple, yeah. They're really good. Yeah, it's great. I think they're going to be around for a while. <laughs> uh, two of them anyway. Yeah. yeah. One, one actively. The other one's kind of, eh. No, they're music, I mean. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, let's get... Uh, have you got all the headlines? Are you are you done headlining us? Yeah, we're done. Ah. Uh, I wanted more headlines. Want- let's get to the well. Let's get to the empty news because the empty news is just as important as the what we'd call the real news. So, let me ask you this: What's the weirdest thing you've ever seen somebody doing while driving in their car? Um, shaving. Shaving. You've seen people shaving. Yeah, with a straight razor. I've seen people reading books, like actual books. Eating a two-pound block of cheese. How did you know it was two pounds? Because that's the size of this block. They're okay. huge. I get them at the store. Mom, put the cheese down. And the guy's over there. He just peels the plastic down, just gnawing on this brick of cheese. You're like, what are you doing? Wow. So here's a woman who got into a car accident oh. because while she was driving, she was eating an egg sandwich. Not the weirdest thing that you've seen. A lot of people eat while they drive. But uh, while she was eating the egg sandwich, officials say the vehicle crashed into a house uh, when a dog who was in the back seat jumped up into her lap. Oh, boy. 
Oh, and boy. Uh, it caused her to steer off the road and, oh, and crash no. into a, a house. The good news is it was a condemned house, so nobody was injured. And uh, the story is kind of funny. They kind of make it sound like, ah, don't worry about Not it. Not a big deal. It was condemned anyway. People do this all the time. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah, scary. it's it's tough. I mean, I get it because you're in a hurry sometimes. Yeah. You don't have time to eat. So, I yeah. But like, what I mean, would you eat if you had to eat and drive? Well, I do eat and drive. And what do you eat? I eat little easy to open, you know, cheese sticks. Okay. I don't eat a two-pound chunk of cheese. I think the moral of the story is you can eat while you drive, yeah. but don't take your pets in your car. Oh, and and if, you, if you're going to have your pet on your lap, it must be a lap pet. And you have to get a, a Not certificate. Not a Labrador. You have to get a certificate for that. Like, like a comfort yeah. animal, you have to yeah. get a lap pet. Or la, a lap pet. <laughs> a lap, a lap. Yeah. Lap pet. But, yeah, watch out. So uh, you may have known this. Probably not. Um, I served an, an LDS mission. Oh, yeah. So for two years I lived in Russia. And uh, oh. I would I would travel to different parts of the country and I would live with uh, various people. And there was one person yeah. who in a, a box of Thin Mints, an empty Thin Mints box – Started collecting his body hair. Why? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. And he put it in this plastic bag and then put it inside the Thin Mint box. Yeah. And it traveled the mission. And there was like a little map that indicated where this body hair had been. Uh, Okay. Okay. I'm using this as a segue to our next story. Well, it seems like it's not working. There's a Palestinian mother who uh, opens up a pillowcase and pulls out large clumps of her multicolored hair that she has kept for nearly seven decades. Like a decade. A pillow of hair. A pillowcase of hair. I like my hair and I hate to throw it away. Even when I comb my hair or wash it, I keep the hair that falls off. She's 82 years old and uh, she started collecting her hair when she was 15, Mm. storing the different shades of black. Brown, gray, and white. Uh, and, yeah, she she was putting it in a mattress before op- opting to use the uh, pillowcases. Well, um, okay. She uses She the should hair, donate it. She uses the hair pillows as decoration. So everyone can enjoy it. Oh, wow. See, this isn't as bad as body hair, though. And I can kind of see why she would want to do that. It's a. It's basically, it's like a journal here is a documentation. Yeah. Here's a uh. documentation of my aging process throughout my life. That makes sense. Here's my 10-year-old hair. Here's my 12-year-old hair. <laughs> so you think it's creepy, for instance, if somebody holds on to their teeth that fall out that they give to the tooth yeah. fairy. I mean, it's cute for a little kid, right? That's cute. But, you know, when a 90-year-old man opens up a drawer full of teeth and, you know, hands them out to the kids. You better start asking questions. The <laughs> police need to be involved. Something's not right there. Yeah. Uh-huh. What's the weirdest thing you've collected? Hmm. I don't collect much. Books. I used to. I have a ton of books. I used to collect uh, ticket stubs, movie ticket stubs. Oh, did you? Yeah. Yeah. I know some people that do that. I, I, when I was a little younger, I used to collect speeding tickets. Really? Yeah. I was like a magnet. I was not normal uh, as a kid because I would cut out box office reports and paste them 
in a flat or a scrapbook. Really? Yeah. That okay. By the way, you your lead into that story right there was very. That was the creepiest one of all. Apropos, did you hear what you said? What's that? I was a weird kid. Yes. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Well, yeah. I, I didn't know you as a kid, but that's weird that you were already into movies. It, is it that much of a surprise? Well, I mean, knowing I, how, knowing me, knowing how much I love movies and how much I know about movies. Well, but to know box office, you know, receipt numbers or whatever at the age of eight. Yeah, that's kind of weird. I mean, you could you could name a movie like Liar Liar, starring Jim Carrey, which came out in the nineties. And I remember it made uh, – it was either 30 or $33 million opening weekend, which back then was huge numbers. Wow. That explains a lot. See, this is how we get to know each other. And I now I, I realize even more. I know the original Iron Man made $105 million yeah. its opening weekend. Well, you need to let that stuff go. Let really? me just tell you because at my age, you will need the space to save more important memories. Like what? Like your daughter's wedding. Yeah, but that's in the future. Yeah, but that that future will be here in 10 years and you're going to have to get rid of some of the – let's just say um, some of the extra stuff you've been keeping in your brain. My daughter's going to be married at 16? Yeah, did you not hear? (laughs) Is this an arranged marriage? Has my wife sold her off to somebody? She's your daughter. Hey, uh, those darn millennials, uh, straight ahead, we're going to be talking with an expert that coaches companies on how to interact more effectively with millennials and understand them better. We're going to try to blow up some myths and also learn about how to be a mentor. Might be the number one thing that a millennial needs is a little mentorship. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, as more and more millennials continue to graduate uh, from college and join the workforce, corporate managers find themselves facing a daunting new challenge, how to best connect with their new young employees. The truth is that millennials are looking for leaders that support them, encourage them, and inspire them to be their best. In short, they are looking for mentors. Here to walk us through these new challenges is entrepreneur and keynote speaker Clint Pulver. You can find out more about his work at clintpulver.com. And Clint's a good friend. Clint, how are you, my friend? I'm awesome, Matt. How are you? Thanks so much for bringing me on the show. Excellent. You bet. In fact, I just saw your new wife singing. Um, she was she was the star in Aida. Yeah, she has been tearing it up. She's That's killing it. Yeah, she's doing so well. She's in her last uh, couple days. It's oh. the last week of the run. Honestly, she was so talented. And um, and Clint, I mean, the whole time I'm thinking, now how did Clint convince this young lady to marry him? That's yeah, what I was thinking. Everybody Clint. else at the wedding. How is that there? How like do that? That's funny. <laughs> it's because you're. It's because you're motivational and you're inspirational, and maybe it's because you understand these millennials. It seems like millennials get a bad rap. Uh, everybody kind of you know throws them you know under the bus, and we have all these assumptions about millennials. What What are we missing here? What are, are What are we getting right? What do we need to know about millennials? Yeah, I think that there's a there's a massive generation 
gap. I, I, I've worked with over probably 5,000 different millennials, mentoring them, working with them, speaking with them, training them, uh, having just one-on-one conversations. And all of this really started for me, Matt. I'll, I'll never forget. I was, in, I was in New York City, and I was meeting with uh, a CEO over um, a massive group of sporting goods stores. And we were in New York City in his flagship store. And I asked him, I said, hey, have you, have you had to switch and change your strategy, how you market, how you do business to meet the demands of an ever-changing marketplace in the 21st century. And he goes, 100%. Hmm. He said, the way we're doing business now versus what we were doing 20 years ago is completely different. He said, we're doing Facebook ads, we're on Twitter, we're Instagramming, we're on Amazon, the whole brick-and-mortar store philosophy of how to do business and advertise through newspapers and, and commercials, it's just it's not the way that it's done anymore. And I, I, I quickly, I agreed with him, and I said, I, you know, I, I, I see that, and you see that in business so often today with, the, with the, the way they market and how they strategize bringing customers into the store and selling the product. And then I, I followed up the question. I said, so what about your management style? I said, have you felt the need to change how you managed 20 years ago to how you manage today? And he fired back and really quick, man. I was surprised. He hmm. fired back and he said, he said, no, not at all. I said, really? I said, you, you manage the same way today as you managed employees 20 years ago. And he said, yep. And we're there in his store. And I look around and every single one of his employees, Matt, were, were millennials, young people. Really? And he gave us some time in, in the story after, after our little interview. He said, you know, I, I want to give you guys 60% off. Go buy some swag because we're in a sporting goods store. Yeah. I, I didn't really want any swag. So I took that time that he gave us. It was about 30 to 40 minutes. And I just went around knowing the millennials that I've worked with, speaking to them, working with them for so long. I was just interested to see their perspective. And so I interviewed six of them. Every single, hmm. all, all six, Matt, said that they would be gone and would not be working at his store in less than three months. Really? They're I out of there. Question, oh, yeah, they're gone. Yeah. All, all six of them. And I thought, I mean, I, I wasn't, when I, when I asked all six, and they all said the same thing, I thought, what an interesting situation. There's a generation gap. I, I came from the medical field before I jumped into the, the professional speaking circuit, and, and I think one of the biggest just killers of Americans is not so much cancer or heart disease or, or high cholesterol. I think one of the biggest reasons people, people die is misdiagnosis, hmm. where we, we, we come in and we see signs and symptoms or we look at, at a person and height and weight or I, I've got you know, a, a loose arm or a headache or I'm, I'm having chest pain. Doctor says, let's give you some blood pressure medication. Let's send you home. Patient goes home dies of a heart attack done or, or patients got yeah. healing in their arm or I feel like, you know, maybe you pulled something, take some ibuprofen, patient goes home, dies of a stroke. And I think sometimes that's what's happened with this generation is we have misdiagnosed them in, in, in a sense of they don't know how to work. They, they're, they're constantly flighty. They don't know how to stick anywhere. They, they don't have uh, a sense of passion. They don't have work ethic. They don't have, I mean, there's lots of, slander with the millennial generation. And, and to be honest, I mean, there, some of that stuff can be somewhat true. I mean, you look at, I mean, the stats in 2020, 46% of the workforce will be my generation or younger. Right. Holy cow. Yeah. I mean, it's and something yeah, you can't just keep, you can't just keep 
you know, putting off as uh, millennials, you have to at some point get in and understand what their needs are. What what is what what makes them tick? Yeah, and we've noticed. I mean, and so for me, that's what started. We call it now the the undercover speaker program, and companies like Hewlett Packard, Apple, Mac, AT and T. And, and, and mainly it's been a big drive for, for tech companies and, and companies that really are employing a lot of millennials because they are losing them. Yeah. Uh, Gallup posted a study that about 60% of current working millennials are looking for a new job right now. Hmm. And for, for a company, I mean, it costs anywhere from, we're, we're talking 10000 to 250000 to replace a, an employee from a low-skilled employee to a high-skilled employee. And so, I mean, that amount of money and, and that rate of turnover, 60% are currently looking for a new job. How do I retain my employees? How do I keep them engaged? How do I keep them empowered? That's the big question. And, and what we're able to do is, is go in undercover. I, I put on my backwards hat, my Nikes, my joggers. I'm a millennial. They're a millennial. And what we learned in that store that day uh, back east as I interviewed those millennials there's there's a power in peer-to-peer collaboration. There's a power in, in asking questions peer-to-peer. And I go in as just someone off the street that's interested in the job or someone that is just interested in them or the company, and I just start asking the hard questions, and we get the real answers versus what maybe some companies would say, well, we, we hand out a company survey. I remember those company surveys when I worked for, for big companies. I, I never totally answered honestly because I didn't know who was on the other side of the survey. I didn't know if it was completely anonymous. And then uh, some companies will say, well, we do the management one-on-one meetings. And if I was mad at a manager, if I didn't like a manager, I wasn't going to tell him face-to-face that I just didn't appreciate him or I didn't like him or there were things that I wish he would change. It just felt awkward. But I would tell other coworkers. I would talk to other millennials. I would talk to my peers and so we found within that, uh, and we've been doing that for five years now, uh, and, and the research and the interesting insights that we're finding that are working for millennials. And when companies are adapting these, retention, engagement, and empowerment go up. Mm. I mean, it's it just seems like smart business, right, Clint, to understand instead of just categorizing. Um, what are some things that, that we need to understand about the millennial age group? What what does generally make them tick? And it doesn't mean that all millennials are the same either. But what should we know as managers about what they're thinking, what they're feeling, and, and what does drive and motivate them? Yeah, I, I think two things that we have found – in, in our research, and then also, I mean, it's, it's great because it's been backed by other research that's been done also, but the power of creating fill-it moments in the workplace, and then second, the power of collaboration versus control. So what, what I mean, going back to yeah. the fill-it moments, creating a sense of, of purpose in the workplace, that what they're doing is, is bigger than themselves. Because a lot of companies are saying, well, shoot, I've, I've got to get, I got to get more bean bags. I need to get more free food. I got to have a better ping pong table. We need to do bigger corporate parties. We need to, we need to do, you know, when Star Wars comes out next year, we got to rent out seven theaters instead of six, and we get, we got to invite their wives and their extended. We got so they're trying to, it's stuff. I got to bring in more experiences, more fun things that keep the employees. But the problem with that that we're finding, that the next company that offers 
um, better bean bags, yeah. better ping pong table, or more time off, they're gone. They jump. Yeah. But it, it's the company that can create a sense of service. I do. I. I. I really think that that the new currency and the lifeblood of business in this era is is giving people the opportunity to freely serve, to give, give, and give, to create fill-it moments. We, we, we worked with a, a bunch of dentists, a, a dental chain, and again, talking, I mean, MAs, medical staff that are young, millennial employees, dentists were having a hard time keeping them around. And you look at the dental industry, high suicide rate for, for dentists in that career. It's not always the funnest. Nobody wants to come see you. Nobody wants to have a needle shoved in their mouth. Right. Uh, the dentist isn't the most pleasant of places, right? So this dentist chain creates an opportunity for their employees to freely serve. And so everybody can do that from the dentist to the MA to the front desk people. A lady comes in, she's having oral surgery. She, she's got infectious disease. She's had an, she's had oral infection for 25 years. Mm. 25 years, and today she gets a brand new smile. So they're ripping out all of her old teeth, and they're putting in dental implants. And the doctor sits there and asks her in the chair with the, the medical assistant staff that's there and says, my goodness, what a cool opportunity for you today. What's the thing that you are the most excited for? And the, the medical assistant is, is there and looks, and, and she, the patient smiles back, and she goes, no, I'm just – I'm so excited not to be embarrassed to smile, hmm. for one. And she said, but second, I just I can't wait to eat sweet corn on the cob. <laughs> She's like, it's, it has been, it's my favorite food. And she said, and for 25 years, I haven't been able to enjoy corn on the cob because it was too painful. I couldn't eat it. And she said, I, I, just, I really look forward to that opportunity. Yeah, that's cool. So they, do the, they do the surgery. That the, the, the dental clinic has, again, remember, the opportunity to freely serve. That's what they've created as a standard to create fill-up moments for themselves and for the patient. The medical assistant, without even being asked, goes across the street to the local market, buys six ears of fresh sweet corn on the cob, brings it over as the patient's in recovery, sets it in her lap, and says, hey, your first corn on the cob in 25 years is on us. That's cool. And, I, and, and there might be some people mad that listen to that story and go, okay, well, nice story. But, it, but it is that, it's that power of a feel-it moment that the millennial generation connects with and, and a sense of purpose, a sense of significance, that they're doing something bigger than their self, that it's not just about the paycheck. It's about the, it's about the, the, the mission. It's about the purpose. It's about what they represent. It's yeah. massive. It's important to us. And companies that are allowing employees to do that and then listening to the employees on how they can incorporate more fill-it moments into their job, it works. Yeah. And, and man, that, that employee, you think she's going to jump to another company that gives her more money or gives her more time off when she's got a place that already meets those needs but then adds fill-it moments on top of it? It's just something that is irreplaceable and, and it matters. It sticks. It totally does, and it and it becomes it, it's theirs. They they have a level of buy-in finally that's not about a paycheck. It's not about what's in it for me. It's how can I change the world? And we do see that more in this millennial generation. Again, we're speaking with Clint Pulver, um, who is a speaker and a trainer, goes into organizations to help companies, big name companies, try to figure out 
how to to connect and reach the millennial. It seems like in a way, Clint, um, some of this, it's it's not even about a millennial because I would think every human being would also want feel at moments. Millennials may want them more, but a lot of this is just good business, just smart relationship Absolutely. management. Absolutely. And I think you're you're sometimes we're working with, you know, a generation that came from uh, somewhat of maybe where business was ran more in a, in a command and control style. Yeah. Where we're we're trying to to switch that over to now more of more of collaboration versus control. Yeah. What's an, uh, what's another? What else do we have to give the millennials to to open them up to to retain them to engage them? And I think the big thing is is, is strive to to listen and speak their language. I, I love that. I don't know if you ever saw that commercial, Matt, where it was the German Coast Guard, and there's a there's an American boat that's over in German waters, <laughs> and they're sinking. And a big storm hits, and the boat's sinking. They they can't they can't do anything. And they call in the German Coast Guard, and over the radio they go, "We're sinking! We're sinking! We're sinking!" And the German Coast Guard fires back and says, "What are you sinking about?" <laughs> Stupid joke. It's really a bad joke. Yeah, it's a bad joke, but, but it makes a great but, point. But but language, right? Are we speaking their language? And mentorship, we found. Is, is massively vital that, that millennials are saying, I, I don't want a boss. I want a, I want a mentor. And most millennials are asking the question, just like I would ask of my audience as a speaker or what you would do, Matt, with your radio show and asking your audience, everybody's saying, let me know when it gets to the part about me. Yeah. As, as, as a business, when we focus on mentorship, that we focus on the people where I would, I would say more management is sometimes more about the organization, about the numbers. Mentors advocate where managers develop. Are, are both important, Matt? 100%. Yeah. But both are needed. And I think sometimes companies that are losing these millennials focus more on the control, command style. It's about the organization. Hit your numbers, and we don't have an issue. But when, but when companies lose the humanity, when they, they, they forget about the people, and it's not just, again, it's not about the benefits or even the paycheck, but, but let me know when it gets to the part about me. Do you know me? Do you advocate for me? Do you, do you know my, my goals and my, 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 what, what I want to become in my life and what, what matters to me matters to this younger generation? And one of, again, going back to just, advocating versus developing. I, I remember this is a great kind of management versus mentorship analogy. My, my mom, when I, was, when I was little, I wanted to play the drums. And I went to my parents and I said, hey, I, I want to I get a, a drum set. Hmm. My mom was very much a management type person in my life. And she said, well, okay, you can get a drum, Clint. You can get some drums when you improve your grades. You improve your grades and we'll get you, we'll get you a drum set. Important, right? Yeah. This is kind of the, 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 the carrot and the stick mentality. Mm-hmm. You do this, I give you this. Where my dad heard the same conversation, pulled me over to, into the other room where all of his CDs were. He was like, son, he said, that's so cool that you want to play the drums. And he pulls out two CDs. First CD is a CD by the band Rush. Hmm. And he says, oh, Clint, he said, this band will rock your socks. He's like, there's this drummer, his name's Neil Pert. The guy's amazing. He pulls out this second CD. The CD is, it's Def Leppard. <laughs> and, and he said, 
put there's this song it's called pour some sugar on me he said the drummer is one handed he said you learn you learn how to play that song he said son i, I love you forever he said get it learn it he said it, the music will change your life <laughs> important right advocating yeah. versus developing mentorship versus management both are important and, and we're finding that most millennials they're not quitting companies they're quitting bosses Interesting. Yeah. The people that haven't – and it's hard to quit your mentor. You know, you don't want to leave your mentor. I mean, unless, it, unless your mentor would even suggest you leave. I mean, it's, it's, it's easier to quit a manager than a mentor. Absolutely. And, and when you've built that relationship and, and uh, I mean, I think it's just – it's trust 101, right? It's relationship 101. When, when you've got someone that cares about you and you care about them, it makes it easier to go to work. It makes it easier to perform at work. It makes it – it's just a better win-win situation. And I think companies that are looking at the mentality of we create a win-win opportunity because it has to be a give and take. And it's not all just about catering to the millennials. And, well, we got to change because we got to meet the demands of these young people. It's both ways. There's, there's things that millennials can gain from the older generation. Right. And that's why the power of mentorship – within an organization is so vital because millennials, we're open. We want to learn. We love feedback. We, we love to know what we can improve on, but that's got to come from a level of relationship and a level of love and a level of concern. And again, let me know when it gets to the part about me. And if you can do that, you open up the world of just uh, success and significance in what you can do with your employees in a company. Oh, it's powerful. Well, Clint, we appreciate you, my friend. That's uh, It's great stuff. If if you go to the website, clintpulver.com, you can find more out about his speaking, even his program where he will go in and uh, and actually get in your company, find out what they're saying, go undercover as a millennial and see how your millennials are being re- received and treated and boy, isn't that just a great idea for all of us? What if we all stepped up and played more of a role as a mentor and advocate for the people around us instead of just somebody that's trying to develop them? It's power. Power in relationships, power in the people. We'll continue the journey straight ahead. More empty news. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know, it's time for a little bit of our empty news from Jeffrey Liam Simpson. What should we be focused on, Jeff? This is the news, by the way, not empty, like not with not devoid of value or sure. vacuous. It's just Thank you for clarifying that, by news. the way. I think a lot of people wonder sometimes. Yeah. So I almost skipped over this story because I read the headline and I was like, oh, that applies to all of us. Woman returns home from vacation to find strange family living in her house. That's yeah, like mean, every day. Oh, yeah. You well, go home from work and it's like, whoa, who also, are these people? <laughs> it depends how much you work, right? If you work a lot, your family is, they are estranged. Then you really don't know who they are. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, so she uh, she hears these two uh, women voices in her home, which is odd, you yeah. know. And Weird. Uh, she approaches them and says, uh, what are you doing in my house? So apparently these two women were duped into renting this home from this woman on Facebook named Rosie Ruggles. Rosie yeah. Ruggles? Yeah. Anybody with the name Rosie Ruggles, yeah. you probably shouldn't trust yeah. him. 
So she was uh, apparently Rosie Ruggles was offering homes for rent. <laughs> the fake landlord reportedly offered to rent the house furnished and described items Lang had moved into the home, including several books and kitchen stools. Wow. See, the kitchen stools, that's not, I mean, books, that's kind of, yeah. va- that, yeah. that's, you, everybody's got you books. You need a book. You carry but a book. Not everybody you. has kitchen stools. No. If somebody's carrying a kitchen stool with them, you know, they're there to stay. Oh, sure. This is going to so, be a while. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, huh. the first part, it's like, well, yeah. yeah. There are many times when I go home and it's like, this is a strange family I've got. <laughs> this is <laughs> But not you know what? Right. I'm sure they feel that way about me too, Could they even get, more so. Did they get rid of them? Did, did they leave? Like, what? Hey, hey, Ruggles sent us. I don't know. Oh yeah, no, we're good. No, it's it's all good. Ruggles, we're we're here for. We're, we're with Rugs. Yeah, we're with the Rugster. <laughs> Who's Ruggles? Yeah, I don't think that worked. Yeah, that's, that's so weird. sad, though. That is. It's, I mean, and and then you know, it's like the squatting laws. So now they can squat in your house. Sure. I mean, yeah. It seems squatting is such a funny term it for is. that type of thing. We'll mm-hmm. move on. Speaking of sad, uh, this all this woman wanted was to buy a birthday card <laughs> at the CVS. She goes in at 9.50 right. on a Friday night, and it closes at 10. And she went to check out just after 10. So there is a uh, – she, she goes to go out, and there's – she's barricaded inside. What? She doesn't realize that – CVS is closed, the employees are gone, and she's locked inside. Well, how long was she there? I mean, did they, or did, this, did the employees just the minute it some, was 10, 10 01, they're locking the doors? Some lazy employees not doing their yeah, security somebody's sweeps. Somebody's in trouble. So uh, a metal security gate blocked the front entrance, sirens blared. She was worried someone would mistake her for a burglar, so she stood out in front of a security camera and dialed police. <laughs> Yeah, that I mean that is a Yeah, what do you do? Well, yeah, you don't want to get like, shot uh, breaking just, and entering. She just wanted a birthday card. <laughs> she must have been like reading the cards very quietly. Yeah. All on her own, you know. Well, you know, I think uh once she saw the security gate, she went back and and uh exchanged the birthday card for a get out of jail free card. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. I don't think they have a Get out of jail free card. Come on, of course they do. Who Hallmark makes that? It's it's part of the community chest. Oh, I bet it makes you cry too. Those cards that make you cry. They're so sad. Yeah. Wishing you were here in jail <laughs> with me, but I'm getting out next week. Okay. Wow. See, so life could be worse for you, folks. You could be locked in a in a, in a store in all a night. CVS. In a CVS. But CVS, you make, they've got treats. They've got drinks. They've got everything. They've got ice cream. True. Locked and loaded. Well, folks, uh, you know, having fun, helping you launch your weekend and helping you uh, live longer, love stronger, lead a healthier life. This is The Matt Townsend Show. the drop folks which means it's time uh, to get you ready for the weekend and this is the last hour that i will be on the show and what we do is we turn over the reins to jeffrey liam simpson so he can launch screen cleaning and uh jeff what's going to be coming up on your show today well we are going to be discussing the career of christopher nolan and uh, it's funny because during the break i said hey matt what's your favorite christopher nolan film and your response was uh dunkirk 
That was not your response. Your response was, <laughs> who? who? I don't know, Christopher Nolan. Then I, I listed off seven of his films. Yeah. And you had no clue. No, I, and I had seen every one of them, but I still didn't know who he was. Now I know he's the sixth uh, highest grossing director in the worldwide box office. Yeah, and you said you were a fan of his latest film, Dunkirk. Dunkirk! Which I also thoroughly enjoyed. Loved it. So Cole and I are going to be ranking some of those films. We're also going to go to the movie court, because one of his films, we couldn't disagree on more. Really? So we take it to the movie court, and there's a verdict that, uh, yeah, so... Did you guys fall into fisticuffs? We almost did. We like to to keep things civil, but... uh, Yeah, that's good. So you're talking, uh, you're you're talking you, on the show. You don't only talk about movies. You also we're talk actually about... gonna, we're talking about the soundtracks for some of these movies as well. We're kind of dissecting good. those as good. well. It's all straight ahead, folks. On screen cleaning, you're not going to want to miss it. But that's it for me. I hope you have a great weekend. I'm going to go make the best of my weekend, and we will uh, reunite again on Monday to make life better for all of us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I don't know if I can do the show today, Cole. What do you mean, Jeff? It's our 10th show. We're going to be highlighting the career of Christopher Nolan. It's a big show. What's the matter? It's last week's show. I I messed up the show intro. And I've been a mess myself ever since. Jeff? Why do we fall? What? Why do we fall? Why? So we can learn to pick ourselves up. Thanks, Cole. You still haven't given up on me, have you? Never. Okay, then. Let's do this. Wow, that was dramatic. I feel better already, and for some reason I slipped into a Batman voice there. Wow, welcome to the show. This is Screen Cleaning with Jeff Simpson, and uh, Cole Wissinger is here with me as always. Absolutely. And today, as Cole mentioned, we're going to be highlighting the career of the wonderful filmmaker Christopher Nolan. And uh, a few of the films we will not be discussing here on the show today because they are R-rated. But uh, after his first three films, he repented and uh, learned uh, that, you know, there's more money to be made and more family-friendly fare. So we're going to be talking about those other seven films here on the show today, as uh, well as Cole and I are going to be uh, going head-to-head in a, in a certain debate. We're going to be going to court, if you will. Mm-hmm. A friendly court. Absolutely. But a court nonetheless. Uh, and as you know here on the show, it's our, it's our goal to bring to your attention and put a big old spotlight on and all that is good in entertainment – so that you can find entertainment for your families to enjoy all together. And uh, we're saving your Fridays and Saturday nights is really what we're doing. So as always, we like to start off our show by giving you some of the better news and entertainment news. In our best franchise news, Cole, you got to be excited about this one. Oh, yes. Daniel Craig back as James Bond. Woo! How excited are you? Very excited. I, I'm a big Daniel Craig Bond fan. Some of my favorite James Bond films have starred Daniel Craig, mm-hmm. including Casino Royale and Skyfall. 
And I actually really enjoyed Scepter as well. I know it didn't get great reviews from the critics, but I thought it was more like the older Bond films than any of the other Daniel Craig versions. But yeah, I I can understand where that's coming from. But the point of the new Daniel Craig is that it's different. It's it's this True. new new Bond for a new age kind of thing. Yeah. I still enjoyed it. It was great. It had some good classic villains in it. Um, but to tie this into the show that we're doing today, mm-hmm. did you also hear that the producers of the Bond franchise are having talks with none other than Christopher Nolan <gasps> to direct a film? Now, talking is different from – what we're seeing here with Daniel Craig being signed on. Right. It means they've had lunch. The Rock is talking about running for president in 2020. Right. <laughs> a lot of people can talk about a lot of things. Exactly. It's one thing to talk. It's one thing to get it down on paper. So he hasn't signed anything. But I think a lot of people would, uh, you know, would start to salivate at the idea of Christopher Nolan directing either the next or one of the future James Bond pictures. Because... I mean, we're going to talk about his seven films in the show here today. And although we are going to rank them, really, there isn't a rotten film in the bunch, in my opinion. Cole might disagree, but they're all quality pictures. Cole's got a huge grin on his face right now because he can't wait. He's chomping at the bit to prove me wrong, which is not going to happen. It's not going to happen because, uh, you know, he's a great filmmaker. And I'm often right. So uh, anyway, that is the best entertainment news that we've got for you here today. But we do have some more good news because today we are introducing a brand spanking new segment here on Screen Cleaning. And here it is. Screen Cleaning proudly presents jolly good shows. Classic films that have stood the test of time and are now being inducted into Jeffrey Simpson's prestigious video library. Thank you for joining us on Jolly Good Shows. We film scholars here at Jolly Good Shows have often discussed among ourselves the amazing comedic talent of such entertainers as Chaplin, Fields, Keaton... And we would be remiss in carrying out our scholarly responsibilities if we did not mention the works of Carrie. In the 1994 comedy classic Dumb and Dumber, two imbeciles embark on a cross-country adventure together. And, of course, hilarity ensues. How dim-witted are the two idiots in question? Well, Oscar Wilde said, There is no sin except stupidity. If we are to believe Wilde's rhetoric, then the sins of characters Harry Dunn and Lloyd Christmas are red like crimson. There is something therapeutic about watching Harry and Lloyd experience mishap after mishap. So it is with great interest in your well-being that we present this important clip from today's film Dumb and Dumber, in which Harry and Lloyd are standing in front of a fire, attempting to stave off the cold of the Rocky Mountains. I can't feel my fingers anymore, Lloyd. They're they're, they're numb. Maybe you should wear these extra gloves. My hands are starting to get sweaty. Extra gloves? 
you've had this pair of extra gloves this whole time? Yeah, we're in the Rockies. Good show, old man. Jolly good show. We shall return in a month's time to reveal our next inductee into the archives of Jolly Good Shows. Welcome to a 90-second movie review for the film Forever My Girl on BYU Radio. Forever My Girl is a love story that begins with the wedding of the two main characters. Unfortunately, the wedding doesn't take place because the groom gets cold feet and leaves town to become a country singer. He is wildly successful with fans galore. Eight years later, one of his high school friends dies and he goes back home and finds he's not really welcome there. Not just by the girl that he left, but the whole town. This film is definitely a chick flick, or as some might put it, a date movie. It is meant to pull on the heartstrings and make you feel for the characters. I did like this story, but I could not get behind the protagonist, Liam, played by Alex Rowe. I did like the performance from most of the rest of the cast, but Rowe's character did not give me anything I could connect with. The other actors did well and delivered performances that had emotions you could feel on screen, especially the young girl, Billy, played by Abby Ryder Forston. She is the precocious seven-year-old, and she was nothing but precocious, as well as cute on the screen. Liam does learn a good lesson in this story, but the way the script got to the moral of the lesson was strange. With its PG rating, you can take kids to see this film, but beware that there is some drinking throughout the movie and a little profanity. The main characters are seen kissing, but nothing else. There is a flashback scene of a person in a hospital performing CPR, plus a scene where one person is choking. Forever My Girl is enjoyable, but not spectacular. I'm giving it a C-plus grade. I'm Sean O'Neill. This has been a 90-second movie review on BYU Radio. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. As we teased earlier, we're going to be highlighting the career of Christopher Nolan, who started out with a very small film called The Following, which we will not be discussing today. Uh, It was followed by a couple of other R-rated films. Again, we won't be discussing them because that's not what we do here on Screen Cleaning. But the fourth film uh, is the beginning of uh, A Beautiful Friendship. What movie, Cole? And a beautiful franchise. Ooh, I love it. I love it. Okay. So what we're going to do here, we're going to take the next six films because the 10th film is not out yet. It'll be out next weekend. And Cole and I are going to discuss those and, and even rank them as we go along. And, uh, the first couple of films are going to be very similar. I mean, our picks are going to be the same, but then we, Cole and I start to splinter off from each other from there. Somewhere. A clear divide. Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk about his fourth film which was Batman Begins. Now, I need to, in full disclosure, I was not looking forward to this movie. In fact, I was adamantly opposed to this movie because of what came before it, which was Batman and Robin, the Joel Schumacher turkey that uh, tanked this franchise for a good decade, it put it it on ice, as Arnold Schwarzenegger might have said. Everybody chill. Uh, Batman Begins, I went with a group of friends, was dragged to see it, and ended up leaving the theater blown away by what I had just seen. Christopher Nolan somehow resuscitated this franchise by getting away from the cartoony, ridiculous campiness of 
Batman and Robin and making the Batman franchise very much grounded in reality. He used practical effects as much as he could and uh, used a little bit of special effects because he had to. Um, but the the villain in this is pretty strong. Now, maybe not the strongest, but it's a good villain to get things going in the franchise. I loved it. This would be my number three pick of the six films we're going to talk about. How about you, Cole? So Batman Begins is my fourth favorite okay. of this chunk of Nolan films. All right. And I don't feel as strongly about it. Um, I th- Obviously, it is much better, and it did turn the franchise around, and it's probably – up until that point, my, still my second favorite Batman. I mean, Keaton did a beautiful job personally in Batman 89. Not Buster Keaton, but Michael, Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton. Uh, but the rest of the movie around him, just it's not as strong as what Nolan brought to the whole franchise. So, okay. All right. So that would be your number four pick. Right. What would be uh, – let you talk about uh, Christopher Nolan's fifth film. Which is my third pick. So this is my okay. third favorite and it's called The Prestige. Mm-hmm. It also stars Batman, uh, Chris, uh, Christian Bale here. And he's a rival illusionist or magician or whatever you want to call it with Hugh Jackman. Yes. And they go back and forth and back and forth here in this kind of period piece where they're – just constantly trying to one-up each other. And The Prestige gets its power from a big twist ending that I wouldn't... I'd be doing it a disservice if I spoiled because you have to go into it. The whole the whole movie is leading to this twist and what it's going to be because, as with a good magic show, us intelligent individuals that watch it are always trying to see how it is they do it. Yeah. And so while you're distracted and trying to find out how they do it for the whole time... Then they hit you with the twist at the end. It's a beautiful creation. It keeps you on your toes throughout, and it's entertaining. And I love how they start the movie off with a close-up of all these top hats on the ground, and you hear Christian uh, Bale's voice saying, Are you watching closely? So they let you know right off the bat, like, you need to pay attention. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the sad thing about this film, and I I went back and forth. I didn't know if this was going to be my third or fourth pick, but – Ultimately, it was my uh, my fifth pick. Oh, so what I just said didn't make any sense. My fifth pick. Um, the sad thing about this film is that it came out the same time that another magician movie came out called The Illusionist with Edward Norton. I think a lot of people were confused about which movie they were seeing. Mm-hmm. But uh, go and see this of the two because it is the better film. So the the next movie that he came out with was... A little film, you may have heard of it, called The Dark Knight. If you've ever been to IMDb and seen the top movie on there, you might have seen it. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I know, this is the only superhero film where an actor won an Oscar for acting. I can't think of any other. sounds right to me. I know Jack Nicholson was nominated for Best Actor for 1989's Batman. Mm -hmm. But Heath Ledger was the one that ultimately won Best Supporting Actor for his performance as the Joker in The Dark Knight, which came out in 2008. Halle Berry did get a Razzie for Catwoman. So if we're talking about award (laughs) credential. There you go. And she showed up to the ceremony, too, to accept the award. So The Dark Knight is another film that I had a really interesting experience with. I was so excited to see it because of Batman Begins. Saw it on the giant, you know, four-story IMAX 
screen. It may have been six-story IMAX screen. And uh, my wife did not enjoy this film. Aww. She was so affected by Heath Ledger's performance that uh, she didn't want to let me ever see that movie again. Um, I may or may not have snuck out to see it again. But uh, the point is, this is a film that was just so epic in scale and such a huge budget. But really, where the film's heart lies is with the performance of Heath Ledger as the Joker. He is just I mean, he kind of describes his character later on in the film when he says, I'm kind of like a stray dog. You know, I I wouldn't know what to do. I what does he say? I'm chasing a, cars. Chasing cars. I wouldn't mm-hmm. know what to do if I found one. So he's kind of jittery and all over the place and unpredictable. To me, he's kind of like the dramatic version of Jiminy Glick, where his vo- <laughs> where his voice goes really high like this, and then it goes really low. Um, but yes, everything from his made up accent to the way his mannerisms go, everything is totally integrated to yeah. this truly crazed individual that he's portraying. And we're going to talk about this film in our next segment after we come back. But uh, and it involves the music of The Dark Knight. But again, this is probably this is the greatest superhero film I've ever seen and my number one pick for Christopher Nolan's films. Also my favorite Christopher Nolan hey, film. Hey, all right. Quite possibly my favorite film of all time. I don't want to just give that out willy-nilly. But it to me, The Dark Knight is the gold standard. If there's a argument to be made against it, is that the that Heath Ledger's performance outshines Batman, that it's more of a Joker movie than a Batman movie, or that it's it's not a real superhero movie because it's too grounded. It's just mm. it's just a cop, you know, cops and robbers heist movie that is based on comic book characters, but if you just look at it as a movie, not as a Batman movie specifically, it's a beautiful movie. That's right. It's not perfect. I mean, I would probably change things maybe in the way of casting. I'm not a huge Aaron Eckhart fan, and, uh, you know, there's probably 30 minutes too long or so. But anyway, that's that's a different discussion for mm-hmm. a different time. So what's the next film that he made, Cole, and where does that lie in your picks? Following the chronology now, so I was in high school when the dark knight came out i was in middle school when batman begins came out so i i've really grown up with this being my batman franchise and so by the time i'm graduating the summer i think before i went to college i went to the drive-in to see a movie called inception hmm. that i knew nothing about going into oh, and i just loved, i love that experience wanted to see a good movie it was recommended to me and after I saw it it was a friday night that i went to the drive-in to see it and whatever the double feature was and I went back the next night to see it again because this is a movie when you get to the end, you realize just similarly to The Prestige that there was so much in the beginning of the movie that meant so much that you didn't realize because you didn't know where the movie could be going. And that ending really upsets a lot of people. And the ending is just so spectacular. I love the ending. By way of summary for the four and a half people that haven't seen this movie in the universe, (laughs) Inception is about Leonardo DiCaprio and his team of of skilled people in diving into the dreams of other people. And it's a heist movie. In order to get things. Instead of stealing something, they're implanting something or placing something into somebody's psyche, I guess. And it starts off – the cool thing about Inception is that that's not where the movie starts off. They start off as just your normal team and it's not even the team that ends up being there but just a team of going in and stealing things. Yeah. Going into someone's brain instead of someone's actual vault Mm -hmm. physically, going into the vault that's in their mind. But by by the crux of the movie, the whole inception part of it is them turning that on its head even and going to implant something as opposed to taking it out. 
it plays with the ideas of dreams. I mean, I I don't think I'd thought about dreams that in depth until then. I, all the all the little things that we all kind of know that happen in our dreams, but we've never talked about, got brought up in this movie. How it seems like you're in a dream for a long time when yeah. really you wake up and it was just a five minute nap, or you know, just several. Yeah. How when you're just starting to wake up, the whole world feels like it's crumbling down. And visually, Chris Nolan did that. How the whole world is kind of tumbling down on top of them. As they're waking up. And we wouldn't have the film Doctor Strange without Inception because it borrows very heavily from Inception. And I will say that up until this point, Christopher Nolan's films have been very light on the special effects. This movie has a lot of special effects but he still tries to use as many practical effects the as he can. The action, the fighting, and the, the movement of the characters is all pretty grounded still, even if you're in yeah. a literal dream world where you can do anything. So would that be your number two then? It is also my number two. That is my number two. Okay, so the next film that he did, we're actually going to skip because that we're going to have an entire segment dedicated to his next film, The Dark Knight Rises, and that'll make more sense as we go along here. The last film uh, to come out before his newest release, Dunkirk, is a film called Interstellar. Now, I mentioned earlier that looking at all these films, I don't think there's a bad one in the batch. Having said that, I will say if that there's this, a weaker is, one. this is my least favorite of the films that he's yeah. done, which is interesting because it's his most grand in scale and ambition. And... Uh, he spares no expense on the effects and the music and what can I say about Interstellar? I mean, it's basically a film where these astronauts are going into space to try to find a new home for humans to inhabit because pretty soon Earth is going to be uninhabitable. Am I right on that? I only saw it the one time. And, right. Uh, Yes, and there's time plays a very... There's a little very... bit of heavy-handed, like, we're yes. the ones that did this to the planet stuff, especially yeah. at the beginning. There's it a little a... throwaway line about how we used to think that the moon landing was real when really it was fake, yeah. or maybe it was the other way around. It's it sounded kind of a, ridiculous. It's a self-important movie, I yeah. will say that. Uh, Christopher Nolan is a little bit on a soapbox. Very entertaining, though. We're going to talk about the music of it later on, but this would be my number... Six pick. So my least favorite of Christopher Nolan's movies. However, I would watch it again. I still think it's a good film. It's just not it's not up to par. So, Cole, I think you are also going to put that as your number six, right? It's my oh. fifth <gasps> favorite. Oh, because that's I another think there te- is a worse. That's one. a tease. Mm-hmm. That's a tease for the segment that's coming up. Well, there you have it. If you haven't seen any of those films, all great films, all uh, PG-13 as well. So uh, check them out. We're going to take a break. When we return, we're going to be discussing another aspect of the Christopher Nolan films, and that is the soundtracks when we return. This is Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. Whoa. I don't know about you, but my I think that's my heartbeat intensifying as we're listening to this music. This is the soundtrack from the upcoming film 
Dunkirk, which will be out next week. And I cannot wait to see this film because it actually Christopher Nolan's getting away from telling superhero stories or science fiction stories. And he's telling a film that is probably uh, the film that is most based in reality of any of his films. Because it tells the story – it uh, tells the story of 400,000 troops that are trying to get home and, of course, it's easier said than done at the end of World War II. And it tells it from three different perspectives, the soldiers in the sky, in the sea, and on the land. And boy, does it look good. And – and if you hadn't noticed as we were going through his actual chronology, every other film up until this point was a Batman movie. Yes. Um, he did um, – he started with Batman, then Prestige, then Batman, then Inception, then Batman, then Interstellar. So this so should be Batman's next Batman movie. Now having said that, there are two Batman, Batman villains in this film. You've got Tom Hardy. Right. And you've got – I've never known if it's Cillian, Cillian. Murphy – he plays the Scarecrow and Tom Hardy plays Bane. Yeah. They're both in this film. And apparently Tom Hardy has like five lines in the whole thing. So that ought to be interesting. Anyway, we're going to be talking about the music. I wish he of... had five lines when he was speaking like Bane. Oh, we'll that's – come on. Don't uh, tip your hand before we've played it. OK. Um, <laughs> we're going to be talking about the music of Christopher Nolan films uh, because they play such a crucial role in the success of his films, especially in uh, the Dark Knight trilogy, which we'll talk about here in a second. But, uh, Cole, I'm hoping that you can play the clip from Interstellar because although I did mention it as my least favorite favorite Christopher Nolan film, one thing that really stood out to me in the in this film was the music. The music was just so grand and beautiful. Anyway, let's just take a listen and we'll talk about it. So it starts out with a little water dripping, and that water dripping sound actually kind of morphs into a tick-tock of a clock, which is interesting because time plays such an important role in this film. The astronauts, they are on a different time plane than everybody back on Earth. So, and sometimes even their other astronauts as they hop from planet to planet and from their yes. spaceship down to the planet. So they, go, they know going into this mission that by the time they get home, the people that are younger than them are now going to be older than them if they're still alive. Mm -hmm. So, And you can hear that clock playing throughout this. And the stakes are really high, obviously. So Hans Zimmer is the composer, and Christopher Nolan apparently gave him one page of notes. He says, I'm going to tell you the fable at the, end of the, at the center of the story. You work for one day, then play me what you have written. And uh, Hans Zimmer took that advice and ran with it. He conducted 45 scoring sessions for this film, Interstellar, which was three times more than for Inception. Wow. Which had pretty good music of its own. Yeah. Okay, so let's get to the next one. Um, this one sends chills up, down, or up my spine all the time. This is the very opening of the film. So it's entitled, Why So Serious? So we know who it's introducing. Yes. So it's based around two notes played by electric cello, solo violin, guitars, and a string section. And uh, throughout the piece, Zimmer uses razor blades 
on string in- instruments to achieve the tortured, twisted sound to accompany the character on the screen. So this is the Joker's theme. And it's just slowly sliding up. The great thing about this song, whenever you hear it playing, you know that the Joker, if he's not already on screen, you know he's coming. He's about to. So if you don't see him and you hear this, you know he's coming. What I love about this is when the first time I saw this, I remember several key Joker scenes where I did not breathe, or it seems I did not breathe through the entirety of the scene. Because I didn't know what he was going to do. I was so affected by the performance and the music that accompanied it that I didn't breathe. And it seems during that string introduction that there's no break. They just keep going and going. So that kind of goes along with not being able to breathe. It is genius. I love this. This has got to be my favorite soundtrack of any of the Christopher Nolan films. Wow. Yeah. So Dark Knight, favorite Christopher Knight or Christopher Nolan film and also favorite Hans Zimmer score. So there you go. So what which one are you going to talk about, Cole? So I want to talk about the music that's in Inception. You mentioned that he's got a pretty good team up here with Hans Zimmer and it continued on with Inception. And the there's just kind of interesting tidbits about the music in Inception. Um if I play a song like this, it reminds you of the song in the movie that is unique because music when you treat music in movies you can do one of two different things to it it can just be a soundtrack that's for us to feel something or it can be actual music that the characters can hear mm-hmm. right in guardians of the galaxy the soundtrack gets a lot of attention because it's a cassette like half the music is just a cassette that star lord's actually listening to right. that we also hear but this film is crucial to this or this music is crucial to this film absolutely it's yeah. kind of their time cue again time playing another really key uh, key piece in a Nolan movie. Um, This is their time cue as to when to jump in and out of the dreams and things like that. But also as they go down in the dreams, time gets distorted and treated differently. And the interesting thing that happens when you do that is that you get a sound like this, which... A lot of people just associate with pretty much every trailer imaginable nowadays. It started in Inception, and what that started off as is a slowed-down version on trombone Ah. on this big old brass section that Hans Zimmer put together that was a slowed-down version of the the singing song that I played earlier. Interesting tidbit about that song from the film La Vie en Rose, I believe. Uh, the actress or the the singer of that song was played in the film by Marion Marion Cotillard, who is in Inception as well. It all connects. Yes, it all connects. Okay, and then we already did Dunkirk, right? Yeah, we. Okay. And just to mention again, the when I first saw that teaser trailer, when I didn't know anything about the movie other than the the little cards that they were putting up that this is by Chris Nolan. He directed The Dark Knight. Yeah. Go see this movie. And then at the very end when you see just all the soldiers looking up, that's all you know about the movie. But the music tells more of a story in that trailer than anything else because it gets your heart 
beating fast and you know right. that something is counting down to something and again that ticking something clock. is about to happen okay also. okay so there you have it the uh the scores in these christopher nolan films a lot of them composed by hans zimmer play such a crucial role in the way that we feel in the way that we enjoy these films and ultimately in the success of these films so good for you hans zimmer Not that you need our congratulations, but uh, you've got your millions and millions of dollars. But keep up the great work. We'll take a break. When we come back, Cole and I are going to be going head to head. We're heading to the court, the movie court, when we return. This is Screen Cleaning. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. As you know, we like to try to keep things civil here on Screen Cleaning, uh, which is a little ironic because I'm about to take Cole to court over an issue that we just cannot seem to agree on. It seems like a lot of times during this show and during our conversations before and after the show as well that we don't agree on very many movies. We wanted to highlight the works of Christopher Nolan because we can agree on so many of his great ones. Right. We both agreed that The Dark Knight is his best film. And that Inception is his second best. And that is unprecedented territory for the two of us. But now we want to talk about the bottom of his filmography. So this is a film that for me came in at... Number four. And, and for, for you, me is dead last. Wow. Wow. I can't believe you're saying this right now. Well, I'm, I'm prepared to take you to court. There's no money involved, but uh, I'm going to take you to the movie court. What you're witnessing is real. The participants are not actors. These are actual movies produced in a California movie studio. Both parties have agreed to cease their fighting and have their dispute settled here in our forum, the movie court. All right, Cole. So here's how it's going to work. You're going to have 60 seconds to give your case against The Dark Knight Rises. And when there's a 10-second warning, you'll hear that sound. And when uh, you're finished, I'm going to give my argument for The Dark Knight Rises. And again, I'll have 60 seconds. And then I might have another debate if we have time that I need to take up with you in the movie court. Are you ready, Cole? I am ready. Okay. 60 seconds starting now. Okay, so The Dark Knight Rises is obviously the weakest of his Dark Knight trilogy that's accepted by most, but it also kind of ruins a lot of the things that I loved about The Dark Knight. It establishes a villain in a similar way to The Joker. It's just never as compelling of a villain as we get out of The Joker. You can never hear a single word or understand a word that Bane is saying outside of that mask. And even though Tom Hardy has a physical presence that's larger than mine, um, it's nothing compared to the Bane that we get in the comic books where he's an actual kind of infused monster that grows to be three times the size of Batman. When him and Batman have his fights, it's just a sparring match and they punch each other a little bit. Even the most cinematic moment that we've gotten in the comic books when Bane breaks Batman's back, it is kind of ruined in this movie because it's it, there's not much that goes on to get us there and to lead up to it. And then afterwards, he just kind of gets out of it. And it's... An hour too long. All right. I heard your argument. And now I'm going to give my argument for 
The Dark Knight Rises, and I don't even think I'll need 60 seconds, but 60 seconds on the clock starting now. So the reason that the, the Batman is the best superhero by far is because there is nothing super about him. The emotional and dramatic stakes are highest in his films because he is not only deeply flawed, but more importantly, incredibly vulnerable. And Batman is the most vulnerable in The Dark Knight Rises. The film drags our protagonist through the mud throughout the film and us along with him. As terrorists take over Gotham City, we sit on the sidelines with our hero as he loses hope and then learns to pick himself back up one last time. I know that the ending is maybe a little bit of a cliche, but it doesn't matter because at this point we're three films into it and Christopher Nolan has roped us in so well that he's got us. And I love the satisfying ending that is a little ambiguous, as all good endings are, and it gives us hope. And that's what really what we need in this day and age. Yeah! Yes! I even incorporated a... A Batman Begins line in there. Did you catch that? I did. Okay. It was okay. <laughs> but is the ending ambiguous? Like, Michael Caine sees them. They're both sitting right there. No, what I mean by ambiguous is that, um, well, you don't, that was a spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Anyway, um, I love that it hints at what's to come next. But then it ends, and you know that Christopher Nolan's not making any more films, so it's up to us to decide what the future is for the Batman franchise. It it copies an ending from The Dark Knight, though, only this time we started at the same place that we end. We got that ending of, you know, is it better to tell the truth or tell a little lie to help people? And then we spend the entire movie kind of neutering that message and saying that really it doesn't matter and we end up at the same place where it's kind of a lie that Batman sacrificed himself and we're going to build a statue in his honor, but really he's just off in France having tea with his girlfriend. So uh, the 60 seconds are up and we've gone over, so I, I request that Cole's last remarks be stricken from the record. And they shall be. I think the verdict is in and... Uh, I think the verdict is that there are probably more important things for us to be arguing. Well, we shouldn't be arguing at all, but more important items that need resolution. And we're going to leave this one as ambiguous as a Christopher Nolan ending. And we're not going to tell you who won this one. You decide. It's all up to you. We didn't even have time for our other debate, but we'll just uh, – I have a feeling we're not going to agree on this one. Who's the better Batman, Christopher Bale or Christian Bale or Ben Affleck? Go. Ben Affleck. I say Christian Bale. Anyway, we're going to leave that one ambiguous as well and let you decide who's right He always right plays second wrong. fiddle in his own movies. Christian Bale can't get a break. Speaking of fiddling, we're going to go after this break to our expert fiddlers at BYU Sports Nation. That is a segue. <laughs> we'll take a break. Hopefully you've enjoyed the movie court here on Screen Cleaning. And uh, we'll be right back. That music always gets me emotional. And I'm often emotional whenever we talk to our good friends at BYU Sports Nation in a good way. And today we've got Jerem and Jason. Jerem and Jason, welcome to Screen Cleaning. Gentlemen, are you there? Can you hear us? Oh, I can hear you now. 
Wow. I was about to lose it there for a second. No, no, no. No, we're here. We, you're always we're seconds always... away from Postal. Now, when you say you're you're here, does that mean, like, you're here for me? Like, if I do need a good cry, I can go to you? You can be that shoulder for me to cry on? We mean it physically we're here in the same building. <laughs> but we also mean it that, yes, emotionally we are here for you. Wow. I'm going to hold you to it. Uh, and hopefully you guys didn't cry when you uh, fulfilled your homework assignment from last week, which was to go see Paddington 2. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, oh about think, that. Think about that. Uh, uh, my dog yeah. ate the movie tickets. Digital what? Bears. Uh, what? My mom doesn't let me see movies. You didn't even bears. pretend like you read the Cliffs Notes. You didn't even go online and read a synopsis. I, 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 th- I saw the first Paddington, did and you I did? really liked it. Uh, and then the, with my daughter, it was great. And then the second Paddington I've heard, uh, like through a week or something, had 100% on Rotten Tomatoes or something crazy. It has 100%, and it has Paddington behind bars. So talk about pulling at your heartstrings. Yeah, I mean, that's, I don't know. I don't know if I could handle the, the emotional roller coaster of, of having Paddington <laughs> go uh, in the slammer. I don't know how I True. deal with that. In the slammer. So I've, I've collected movies over the years, and we did a story earlier about uh, a woman who is collecting hair over seven decades. And I'm curious to know, what are some strange things that, that you gentlemen have collected over the years? Um, bad habits. Whoa. <laughs> the souls of defeated foes. <laughs> okay. I, I I'm not a, I'm not a huge collector. Um, I don't know, Jeremy, do you collect things? I used to collect cards when I was little. Really? Baseball cards? Football cards? Mainly basketball. Yeah, I've got, I've got <gasps> a nice bat. I have got a Michael Jordan 84 Olympic card. Nice. Did you, yeah. do you still have the rock hard bubble gum that came with it? Uh, no, I you didn't collect uh, I ate the that. gum. Okay, I ate that. but it was still rock hard as you bought it, brand new. Brand new, like yeah. like it was right out of the package, and it broke a tooth. <laughs> well, speaking of sports, what is coming up on BYU Sports Nation here in just about eight minutes? BYU has won three in a row in <sighs> convincing fashion. Why is it? Is it Zach Selyusin's starting lineup? Is it inferior opponents? What like what is it? We're going to discuss that. Paddington two. The program. They went. Paddington they two? went as a team, and it corralled them. Yeah. Somebody who I uh, I bet enjoyed Paddington two if he has seen it. Steve Cleveland. He's going to join us. <laughs> I bet you he hasn't seen it. He might be to take his grandkids to see Paddington two. Maybe we'll ask him. Probably not, but maybe in the break. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he's going to join us. We're going to talk hoops. Lots of hoops today. BYU playing really well in a big game tomorrow against San Diego at the Marriott Center. And do you like three thousand screaming kids? That's what's going to happen. Oof. In about an hour, can we make at the it Smithfield House more like three hundred? I think I could stomach that a little more. Yeah, uh, no. We'll talk to one of those kids, Spencer Linton, live from the Smithfield House on the show <laughs> to preview the 18th ranked BYU gymnastics meet against the Flippin' Birds of Southern Utah. Whoa, that's, that's really their name. They, that's Flippin their nickname. Birds? That is their name. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Hopefully, okay. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Yes. Okay, so great things to come on the show here in just about seven minutes. It'll be decent. Anything else exciting happening over your weekend? Sports. Yeah, we'll Men's volleyball to... tonight. Basketball playing. Basketball San tomorrow Diego. night. Yeah. yeah, it's going to be fun. As you know, our lives revolve around BYU sports. 
I guess. You get paid for it, so that's nice. It is a blessing. Yeah. Isn't it nice to get paid to do the one thing that you enjoy the most? Sleeping? Oh, Ooh. yeah. Now that's when you know you've made it, when you're getting paid sleeping. Technically, I guess if you're salaried, you're getting paid when you sleep, but... You go to sleep apnea studies and get paid. That's well, true. it sounds like it's going to be an amazing show. Have a great weekend. Have a great show. And uh, we will talk to you again next week. That's coming up here in just about six minutes, BYU Sports Nation. As you know, each show of screen cleaning, we like to end the show by giving you our panning for good segment which is all about shining a big old spotlight on a particular actor, performer, director, or an event, or a movie. And uh, we've got another great one here for you today on our Panning for Good segment. There's good in them there hills. (laughs) I'm really excited about today's pick for Panning for Good because it actually started out as a book... And, of course, like many books, ended up being made into a film. It's a film, or it's a book that came out in 2001 called Flipped. Have you ever heard of Flipped, Cole? I don't think I have. Okay. Uh, It takes place in the late 90s, and it involves... uh, The story is told from two point of views, or two points of view. One from a young boy, and one from a young girl. And it's basically a... A romance between these two characters, but not in the way that you would think. The boy uh, has this girl move in next door to him, and when he's telling his part of the story, he can't stop talking about how annoying she is and how he can't stand her and how he wishes she would go away. And this sweet girl is all about service and kindness, and of course, she has a crush on this boy that has wants nothing to do with her. Well, as the story goes along, she gets a little disenchanted by him because of some of the choices that he makes. And so they kind of flip their position, if you will. That's why it's called flipped. And now this boy starts to recognize that there are some admirable qualities in this girl while the girl starts to distance herself from the boy. So, like as I said, it was made into a film directed by Rob Reiner, one of the great directors. We've been talking about another great director, Christopher Nolan, on the show. He directed it, in, and it came out in 2010. Um, the difference between the book and the movie, though, is that he has shifted the timing of the, of the story, and it's, it takes place in the 60s. Very cute film. It's a film that my mother loves because it's about characters performing service for other people and being kind. Uh, Really cute film about adolescent romance. You've never seen it, though. I've not. It kind of bombed. It was made for $14 and it it only earned like a million. But definitely one you should check out. I will. And other films you should check out are the films of Christopher Nolan. Because he, at heart, is a storyteller. And boy, oh boy, is he a solid storyteller. Boy, does he know how to spin a yarn. And he may spend a lot of money spinning those yarns when he might not need to. But I'm not going to complain because I've enjoyed every single one of his films. Congratulations once again, Jeffrey, to your 10th show. Thank you, Cole. You're a part of that success. Well, that's going to do it for the show today. You can hear us every Friday at 9 a.m. Mountain Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time. 
Until next week.